0: My fellow Westorians, I'm Aziz, with me is Asheia, and this is another Valar As we take on a feast for crows, Valar Reridus seeks to entertain while preparing you for the winds of winter. Many of the new plot lines and locations launched in this book are not yet resolved, taking us to our greatest heights of mystery yet. For the remainder of the Valar Reridus journey, we'll be looking ahead as much, if not more, than we've been looking back, but the core message remains the same.
1: The best books are those that hold up to repeated rereading. From George R. R. Martin.
0: Thanks, George. I'd say we all agree. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions. You can also send questions and comments ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media outlets, Facebook, Flick, Discord, or Slack, or Patreon. Which, By joining Patreon, you can sign up and get additional benefits as well and support us financially, which we greatly appreciate. Also, be sure to check out the Isle of Faces podcast. That's Joe Buckley's show. He's in tandem with us every week. His chapter reviews are right in line with ours, and you'll find a lot of his thoughts in these episodes. Same goes for Nina Friel, except her thoughts can be found on Tumblr at goodqueenally.com with one L, and her thoughts are throughout this episode and almost all of Ballaratus as well, and they're invaluable. This week, we have... A great batch of chapters. Samuel 2, the Blackbird to Bravos, aka the one with the baby swap reveal. Jamie
1: 2, the one where Jamie argues with everyone. AKA the gang sends Tywin home.
0: Cersei 4, dwarf head, giant skull, aka the Queen's New Council.
1: And finally, the Iron Captain. The gang prepares to moot. AKA the one with when men see my sails, they pray.
0: This one's a little shorter, not necessarily our episode, we'll see about that. But in terms of the amount of the chapter lengths this week, Cersei has a 50-50 minute chapter, but the other three are about 10 minutes or more below the feast average of 44 minutes. But still, feast chapters are the longest, so even shorter feast chapters have a lot in them. And heck, even short other chapters have a lot in them. This is A Song of Ice and Fire, after all. Today's theme seems to be... There's a couple of them. As usual, there's more than one or two, and there's probably some that I don't pick up on. And this time around, we've got lots of talk of abominations Gilly and her babe, Aaron referring to other gods, Jamie and Cersei's children coming up. And of course, that's what a lot of people view bastards as in Westeros. It's not fair, but I mean, incest bastards, that is. It's not fair, but it is how it works there. Jamie thinks of Ares, and of course, Ares was a product of incest as well. But a much bigger theme today is childhood memories, or just memories in general. Memories from long ago. Memories from long ago in some characters means childhood, but with other characters like Eamon, Maester Eamon, that is, memories from 30 years ago are still a long time and very different time for him. And of course, when you're 102 or whatever he is, you've got a lot of memories. Sam, of course, thinks about some early memories being thrown in a pool and being sent away from uh, the Arbor as a laughingstock. Arianne doesn't have a chapter this week, but she's going to have childhood memories next week in hers. Brienne had some last time. Cersei's going to think about dressing up as Jaime. She's as a, as a child, she's going to think about the Valonqar prophecy and her young friend, Malara Heatherspoon. Lots of memories there. Jamie, of course, thinks about Ares because he thinks about Ares almost every chapter, especially while Cersei's acting like Ares. <laughs> And of course, Victorian has some bad memories too, thinking of his wives and his bad memories of Euron. So, a lot of that this time, a lot of mixed in history as well, especially in this first chapter. And a lot of it's under the radar. So, I'm excited to s- discuss it with you guys. Let's do it. Samuel 2, the Blackbird to Bravos, AK the one with the baby swamp reveal. The black bird may as well be a raven. That's the name of the ship, by the way. A bloody raven in this case, because Brendan Rivers is a big part of this one too. Quite a bit of Targaryen history is in this chapter, really. That makes this chapter rich, particularly so if you haven't gotten a strong handle on the, on the history before you read at this particular time. The significance of so much of this chapter passes unseen the first time through, and maybe even the second and third times if you haven't looked at the extended material, if you haven't read the Hedge Knight novels or The World of Ice and Fire or Fire and Blood. There's a lot of important references in this one, the kind that meant little the first time through or nothing first time through. That plus knowing in advance about the baby switch makes this chapter a lot different on reread. More than most, the first line is,
1: the sea made Samuel Tarley green sick.
0: He has almost his own little memory of a drowning ceremony. You know, the ironborn do their drowning. And of course the ironborn chapters are prominent here. And when Sam was thrown into a pond to try to learn how to swim, well, he, he struggled to, to stay above water, even though the, <laughs> the bottom of the pool was pretty low or pretty high rather. So, but it was kind of a forcible, like learn to swim or not kind of situation. And interestingly, Sir Hyle was there. Now, it's not a big deal that Sir Hyle was there, but it's just a good example of George introducing characters and and filling them out by having them appear in other places. So that's Sir Hile Hunt, the same one that's with Brienne. And here's our first regular quote of the chapter. The longer he looked at the sea, though,
1: the colder and deeper it appeared. But not looking at the water was even worse, Sam realized in the cramped cabin beneath the stern castle that the passengers
0: were sharing. This is perhaps suggesting that while both are terrible, facing your fears is worse than hiding from them. Sam's discomfort with The journey is very much a metaphor for how he's facing his past. He's thinking about these things that still traumatize him, as well as thinking what's coming in the future. Eamon says it himself later in this chapter.
1: Sometimes there is no happy choice, Sam. Only one less grievous than the others.
0: It applies to that point of, well, you'd rather be a lot sick than even more sick. But it applies to the baby swap as well. And that's what it was actually said in reference to. The bodies of water are used in comparison here as a metaphor for Sam's fears, but also Gilly's sorrow and Eamon getting a small taste of life again after over 65 years on the wall. So it's not just about Sam, let's be clear. Sam thinks how Gilly's tears must be from fear. She's never even seen a lake, let alone an ocean. He thinks how the small lake he was tossed in is nothing compared to this, how the ocean's depths are unfathomable. And likewise, while Gilly may indeed be frightened of the ocean, I mean, yeah, it would make sense, but the depth of that fear is nothing compared to the pain at leaving her child behind. That is such a bigger thing in play for her right now. The ocean is just making it all worse, but that's where her focus is for sure. So it's a major part of this chapter, getting ill from motion and from fear. But when he learns that Gilly was forced to leave her own child behind and take Dallas slash Mance's baby instead, he feels partly responsible And at this point, the seas are completely calm. Despite that, though, this realization makes him sicker than he'd been at any point prior with all the ocean tossing and storming and all that.
1: Wordless, Sam staggered up onto the deck to retch, but there was nothing in his belly to bring up. Night had come upon them, a strange, still night such as they had not seen for many days. The sea was black as glass. At the oars, the rowers rested. One or two were sleeping where they sat. The wind was in the sails and to the north. Sam could even see a scattering of stars. And the red wanderer, the free folk, called the thief. That ought to be my star, Sam thought miserably. I helped to make John Lord Commander, and I brought him Gillian the Babe. There are no happy endings.
0: We see an example of other senses getting keener when one is lost, even in a man over 100 years of age he's never seen either of the babes in question here, Eamon, but he's heard them both. It's not strange at all that he can tell one apart from the other by sound, especially because as we noted in Sam 1, Dallas babe is noisy and Gillies was quiet. So that's a little clue here. We pointed that out at the time and here it here it comes really important because it's probably how Eamon could tell. Although it probably isn't just one reason. Eamon probably noticed a few different things. The point is raised subtly here in this one as well. So what Wisdom he's gained through the ages about people is guiding him here too. Eamon can tell tears for grief from tears for fears. Whoops. I also want to note that Eamon uses the title Lord Commander and then Lord Snow when referring to the decision. Never John. Remember he says, John never would, but Lord Commander Snow would. And this is referencing that kill the boy advice that he gave John in the first place. After all, Eamon is partly responsible for this too, at least in terms of giving the advice. Sam is feeling, feeling guilty for bringing Gilly to John only for her to be forced to give up her child to protect another. I mean, that is not what he had in mind when he saved her and when he got John elected. I wonder how this will contrast to him giving Bran over to Bloodraven being Coldhands. He doesn't even know what ha- that happened, essentially. He knows that he helped Bran get through the gate and passed off to Coldhands, but he doesn't know what's gonna happen after that. He knows they're going after the Three-Eyed Raven he doesn't know who that is. But eventually, this may come full circle. What if Jojen dies or is killed, or Howland Reed has given up one of his children to save Ned Starks? I don't think that's what Sam had in mind either. So, Sam has seen a lot of these leaders, uh, or may see a lot of these leaders do things that he really doesn't agree with. And he may not, he may have gained the perspective to understand, but he might not. Now, as Brand passed, Under the black gate, a tear rolled down his face from the door itself. Here, Aemon enjoys the rain on his face and says it's been a long time since he shed tears. We wonder when that was. Perhaps when hearing of Viserys' death on the uh, Great Grass Sea. He didn't know Viserys personally, so he wouldn't have known what a terrible person he was. But that's another one of his relatives, one of the few remaining relatives left. Certainly after Robert's rebellion, he cried when his grand nephews and nieces were killed. Does he regret any advice or interpretations he gave to Rhaegar, his brother? Speaking of regrets here, well, that's a big deal. We know that he was corresponding with both Egg and Rhaegar, and, well, both of them had bad endings relating to prophecy slash hatching dragons slash dragon dreams, and if Mm -hmm. Aemon's advice was part of that, well, he might be carrying some guilt. Speaking of tears, we know he's going to pass soon, and this is the chapter where he says, Egg, I dreamed that I was old. And whoa, is that one of the saddest single lines in all of A Song of Ice and Fire? A number of people pointed to that. Joe Buckley calls it top five. I would agree.
1: I call it number one, <laughs> not only in A Song of Ice and Fire, but in the history,
0: literature, <laughs> just everything. In everything. In the world.
1: <laughs> it really gets it. It really does just get it. Everyone just has these fears of being old or is old and dreaming about not being old. Yeah.
0: And it helps that the Who show can't relate it? to it. Like, I yeah. just, who can't? It helps with the show version of it. was I mean, it was cut short, but he did that line and it was really good. Yeah, and, yeah, and that helped like boosts the memory of it, makes it even sadder that we have uh, an actor's version of portray as well. So on his mind is whether he will be seeing his brothers again when he dies. Egg and Arian and Daron. It strikes me that Daron, Darian, the singer, is reminding him of those two older brothers, Daron and Arian. Even the names work as a mashup. I'm having trouble saying them. Arian, Daron, and Darian, right? The two brothers, Arian and Daron, and then the singer, Darian. Hmm. Daron was troubled by dragon dreams, drank heavily, and frequented brothels. Sad and troubled, and incapable of much at all, he notably shied away from even mild violence. Arian was short-tempered, selfish, and cruel. Didn't shy from violence. Uh, he was sent to live in Leith, one of the nine free cities, for a while. Darian, the singer, also shied away from combat, even in the practice yard. He's also a bit cruel, definitely has a temper, and is going to abandon the group so he can live in one of the free cities. He's going to frequent brothels and drink heavily there. So it's like all the same things. He also has a look. Darian looks a lot like Daron, who didn't have the traditional Targ hair color. He had like sandy blonde hair, which is pretty similar to Darian's. And well, we have a reference in the text to round all this out.
1: Looking for mermaid slayer, asked Darian when he saw Sam staring off across the bay. Fair-haired and hazel-eyed, the handsome young singer out of Eastwatch, looked more like some dark prince than a
0: black brother. That's pretty close to Daron, like I said. Sandy hair instead of the usual Targaryen coloring. Now, he died from an STD while Arian famously died from drinking wildfire, And Darian will die thanks to Arya. Also,
1: I just want to say, because when I first looked at it, I was like, why is he calling him a dark prince when he's light colored? It's just because they're all dressed, obviously,
0: in black. Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It's not really
1: a commentary on him as a person or anything.
0: Right, right. (laughs) Although it kind of works. It is.
1: It works. It (laughs) works. But it, it took me a moment. I
0: don't think Sam has realized what a scumbag he is just yet. He was actually the first one to point Sam out when he arrived way back in the first book. He Joe points out that he was John and Darren's had a little bit of a friendship burgeoning friendship but Darren went sour on John when John threw that tantrum about being made a steward because Darian was being made a steward too and he's like is this what you think of me? Maybe John was trying to make up for that a little bit or just trying to find a use for him going back to that quote the mermaid's bit that's a fun reference since Davos is headed to Skagos under the auspices of Wyman Manderley whose sigil is the merman so that might be a little hint there And of course, let's say a few things about that, the mermaids and and Skagos, the the Manderly plot. He's obviously sent Davos there to get Rickon, Rickon being on Skagos. um, Yeah, that's an interesting plot that we have yet to see the end of. I'm very curious about that. We have a Skagos episode, two Manderly episodes. So check those out if you're interested in more on this plot line. Here is a a quote that's also in our episode on Skagos, but we're going to discuss it slightly differently here because the relevance is a little different. But this is a really good quote.
1: Only a hundred years ago, Skagos had risen in rebellion. Their revolt had taken years to quell and claimed the life of the Lord of Winterfell and hundreds of his sworn swords. Some songs said the Skags were cannibals. Supposedly, their warriors ate the hearts and livers of the men they slew. In ancient days, the Skagosi had sailed to the nearby Isle of Skane, seized its women, slaughtered its men, and ate them on a pebbled beach in a feast that lasted for a fortnight. Skane remained unpeopled to this day.
0: Jeez. <laughs> That's such a good quote. Yeah, this was during the reign of Daron II, maybe maybe during Bloodraven's time, but Daron the Second's reign was really long, and Bloodraven was particularly young when Daron's reign began. So it's hard to say for sure. The Stark in question here is Barth Blacksword, son of Cregan, meaning the same Cregan who was the old man of the North. But during the Dance of the Dragons, when he gained a lot of his fame, he was a young man. He's the one that held all those executions that mostly were commuted to sentences on the wall. And he is succeeded, Barth Blacksword, uh, by Bra- another Brandon Stark, who is the youngest son of Cregan and Lyanna. Note that it says... Lord of Winterfell in this ante- anecdote, not Lord Stark. Now, this just could be the way George wrote it, but we know George is very careful with his wording, and this could be a subtle nod to what's coming. After all, the current Lord of Winterfell is Ramsay, not a Stark at all. And if Skagos rose with Rickon, I mean, I could easily see the Skags siding with the traditional Starks rather than the Boltons, or I could see the other way around, too. But if they do side with the Starks, then maybe the Skagosi will be part of what takes down Ramsey. and then they will have fulfilled that same destiny of their ancestors in slaying a Lord of Winterfell. So it's possible, it's possible. And of course, who would take over after that Lord of Winterfell in this case? Another Brandon, perhaps, <laughs> Brand, this Brand Stark, or, or maybe it'll just be Rickon or Sansa, I don't know. But still, a lot of uh, reason to think about that one. Lots of songs are mentioned in this one because Darian is playing for the crew, for the rowers and the sailors, etc. Songs have been a little muted, pun intended, this book, but they're always prominent. They're always present. There's there's less of it in this book, like I said, but it's still there. And is a particularly important one here. There's music in the Ironborn chapters. I actually said that Iron Islands isn't a place with a lot of music, but they do have some. They have their reaving songs and you know, they're partying a lot before the king's mood, as we'll see. But we'll get back to that, of course. The important or most important song mentioned here is A Thousand Eyes in One, which most of you immediately know what that means. And it's fitting that we have a song about Blood Raven who's that people said that about him, that he had A Thousand Eyes in One because of all his uh, spy network. It was kind of like Varus' Little Birds, a similar sort of meaning behind that statement. Now, this is the first ever mention of Bloodraven, and two chapters ago, we got the first ever mention of Bittersteel in the Arianne and Ares-Hokar chapter. So, how cool is that? Neither of them, again, appear in this book, though. No more mentions of Bloodraven nor Bittersteel this book, but a lot of mentions of both of them in A Dance with Dragons. And remember, when George first started writing this, it was supposed to kind of all be one book. So this is part of maybe how he split things up. He still wanted to introduce those characters, but then he set them aside and then made them pretty major in A Dance with Dragons. Actually, though, if you count the Duncan Egg novels, they were mentioned prior to Feast because Feast was out in 2005-06 and Duncan Egg's second novel was out in 2003. That's The Sworn Sword. And that's technically the real first mention of Bloodraven and Bittersteel. They were both discussed prominently by a survivor of the actual first Blackfyre Rebellion. So right from the source there. So mentioning both of these characters so close together, there's no way that's not a big deal, right? This is part of the buildup for the Blackfyre era stories and for those characters to matter, not just in the Winds of Winter, but perhaps beyond. And well, there's more about it right here.
1: I was five and 30 and had been a maester of the Citadel for 16 years. Egg wanted me to help him rule, but I knew my place was here. He sent me north aboard the Golden Dragon and insisted that his friend Ser Duncan see me safe to Eastwatch. No recruit had arrived at the wall with so much pomp since Nymeria sent the watch six kings in golden fetters. Egg emptied out the dungeons too, so I would not need to say my vows alone. My honor guard, he called them. One was no less a man than Brynden Rivers. Later, he was chosen Lord Commander. Bloodraven? Said Darian.
0: I know a song about him, A Thousand Eyes and One, it's called. But I thought he lived 100 years ago. More, actually. He's about 125 now. So probably the only person alive older than Maester Eamon, not counting Melisandre. Aemon and Bloodraven spent a lot of time on the Wall, so he's connected to Aemon's side of things concerning communications with Rhaegar and Egg over the years with regards to prophecy and other matters. And Bloodraven was his senior, as I said, 23 years older, so he was on this prophecy track before him. He was hand for two different kings. The first one was Aerys I, not the Mad King. That's the bookish king, kind of like Roderick the Reader, really, the Roderick the Reader version of the Targaryen kings. And he was the older brother of Makar, so... Since Makar was the father of Amon, Egg, and the rest, that meant this Ares, the reader, guy was their uncle. And of course, Bloodraven would also be their uncle, but like a half-uncle, really. Still, part of the family. And since Ares and Bloodraven were tight, and Ares was the guy who supposedly rediscovered the prophecy of the dragons coming back. Well, you can just draw a straight line from Ares I through Bloodraven, through Maester Aemon to Rhaegar and to Egg. And it's very easy to see these connections because we know they were in conversation with each other and they had long lives and got involved in prophecy and all this other stuff. A lot of the details are missing, but the structure is in place. We just need to know more to get farther. But there is so much we can infer from all that. For example, Maester Aemon says he went up there He believed he belonged up there. Now, is that for prophecy reasons? Does he, is he thinking about the return of the others? It's entirely possible. It makes sense. On the other hand, he doesn't really talk about it that much during. Major Amon's time on the wall, he mentions prophecies. He talks about things like the Horn of Winter, but he doesn't go that deep with any of it. It's kind of, he alludes to the fact that he has some knowledge on these topics. It's too bad that he said that John sends him away because he fears for his life because He probably could have given some incredible advice or at least advice that we as readers would love to have heard, whether it's accurate or not. We would love to hear whatever lore he can spill for us. Anyway, most of that time that Bloodraven and Aemon were on the wall together, Bloodraven was Lord Commander. It only took him six years to take the top spot. I mean, he was a hand for two kings in a row. Plus he was a military leader and a master of whispers. It's kind of an obvious choice to take over even though he was unpopular in some places. But he brought, or at least they came with him, a lot of his raven's teeth who were his personal guard. They took the black at the same time as he did. And that almost certainly helped the voting.
1: Probably (laughs) hard to fight with them. Yeah. To argue.
0: (laughs) It's true. You wouldn't want to like, he had enemies, but he also had his loyalists around him at all times. So what's funny about all this too is Bittersteel would have been on the wall then as well. He was sentenced to be there, but the ship he was on was intercepted probably by the Golden Company. And soon enough, he was back in place at the top of, leading them is the captain general. So that's a real uh, Houdini-esque escape there. I wonder how that happened. I would love to see like a mini story on that. So we have three different episodes on Bloodraven plus other episodes that he's a part of. The third of which covers the time we're discussing here. That one's called The Three-Eyed Bloodraven. We have one on Bittersteel d- directly. And like I said, they both appear quite a lot in the rest of the Blackfire Rebellion series, but they have episodes focused on them. Amidst the baby swapping and identity concealing, the need to conceal parentage is shown to extend to Gilly here too. Remember that, well, given her parentage, a lot of people aren't going to be too happy about that. Stannis is going to, you know, use the term abomination and to dance with dragons kind of humorously, but it's a serious thing. It's also barely used at all, that term, in this book. But it does come up in the Iron Captain chapter. And, well, while we're at it, Eamon... Not a child of incest, although it's obviously in his family history. Neither is Bloodraven, but ditto. They both have a lot of it in their in their backstory or their, the the rest of their family tree, but not their actual parents. There's some outlook for the Winds of Winter and for the rest of Sam's story, and it's not pleasant. Sam is thinking about happy endings and all that, but it doesn't actually look like it's going that way for a lot of these characters. Neither Darian nor Eamon's going to make it to the end of the voyage. Darien's going to be killed by Arya, of course. Eamon's going to die aboard the ship. Gilly's going to try to go to Horn Hill, but as of the end of either of these books, she's still at the Cinnamon Wind while Sam's at the Citadel, and we know Euron's coming to Old Town, so is she going to get out in time? I don't know. I mean, hopefully, but there's a lot of y'all expressed worry for Gilly whether this is going to work out, either that something happens regarding Euron or that going to Horn Hill doesn't actually work out because Randall figures something out or he doesn't like her. Well, at least we know that Randall Charlie's not there right now. He's in the field. He's leading armies and stuff. So he may not ever make it back to Hornhill. That might be a, a godsend for Gilly and Sam because Dickon seems like he might be a better person. Of course, Dickon maybe won't make it back either. So we'll have to see how that goes. But this quote really sums up how Sam's thoughts come crashing down.
1: The distant clouds glowed for half a heartbeat, Mountains heaped on mountains, purple and red and yellow, taller than the world. The worst isn't done. The worst is just beginning, and there are no happy endings.
0: Yikes. Hard to argue with that, though. It, it seemed for a while that the Winds of Winter would be the most destructive of the books. It's felt that way for quite a while. I still, still hold to that theory, to that. That would be my bet. We'll have to see. But this is, could be exactly what this line is telling us. A couple of thoughts from Joe here. In terms of the location, this is the last chapter we have in this book, Above the Neck. Interesting, yeah. It's really very focused on King's Landing, especially Cersei, Brienne, and Jamie, and then the Ironborn and Dorne as well, of course. And yeah, there's a lot of sailing in this book too. we we probably more ship scenes in this book than maybe all the others. It's not, not entirely clear on that. I haven't counted, but it feels like that might be true. We got Sansa. We got Victorian. Next book, we'll have Tyrion and Quentin as well. And Sam, obviously. and Sam again is gonna, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the rest of his journey, yeah. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Cinnamon wind, the aforementioned. Uh, what Sam figures out about Gilly is really powerful. Even though he's already judged her as an extremely brave person facing quite a lot, once he realizes that it's actually quite a lot more than he first knew because of the baby swap. I mean, Gilly is amazing. This is a quite a bit of what she's facing is sometimes flies under the radar, but if you add it all up, it's like, wow, she has been through a lot. Raised in a hut, basically grew up figuring the tree line was the end of her world. Crosses the wall, never even seen a castle, never seen an army. Now she's on the open sea without her kid, forced to care for a different kid with a man who, like in love with a man whose vows prevent him from being with her in the way she wants. All this other stuff. It's just a huge list of my, what Joe calls mind-shattering items. Like, the way her strength is really powerful. It, it's, it references Sir Aris Oakheart of all people who said the women are the strong ones because this is a fantastic example of that. And it's so sad and annoying for Darian to be like, I thought wildlings were supposed to be strong. It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, he doesn't know some of these things but he could piece together all the stuff about where she grew up and these things she hasn't seen before and, it's interesting, too, Joe points out that Sam should want to be a maester. Obviously, besides the sight of blood and corpses. But the books, like, shouldn't he want that? But Randall's cruelty and telling him, you you know, Tarley's will never be chained and, you know, you can't serve like that. It just beat him into it, or beat that into him. That he's so traumatized over that, it's sad that he can't want what he, seems like he would want. Randall did quite a pulled quite a number on him. Interesting, too, is we see where Sam derives some of his strength. It's not strength in himself. He puffs himself up, pumps himself up by doing things for other people. This quote really speaks to that.
1: That was Sam's solace. I'm going for them, he told himself, for the Night's Watch and for the happy ending.
0: This is a subtle but powerful statement on how deeply good Sam is. It's a great example of how the certainty of the POV structure gives us things that we couldn't get elsewhere. We know that Sam is truly motivated by helping other people because we see it inside his head. Other characters, they might say that and we might believe them because their actions add up that way. But we have certainty with Sam. And it's when people, people who genuinely are motivated by helping other people, well, that's, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. It's important, too, this chapter comes right after Brienne 3 because of the shadow of Randall Tarly hanging over both Brienne and Sam. Randall's violent misogyny negatively affected both of them, and despite both being brave characters, Sam has already survived the fight at the fist, killed an other, fought whites. Brienne has already shown herself willing to draw steel against an entire gate guard on behalf of innocent people. These are not unbrave people when it comes down to it. The trauma associated with Randall goes so deep that it makes both of them afraid to face him again even when they can. tell him he's been wrong. Even they can show up and prove that they've done more than he expected. Randall acts a lot like Tywin within that scene where, well, the Arbor scene where he's remembering Paxter Redwine's fool joking about Sam being like a roast pig. And that, Nina suggests, maybe that was the final break for Lord Tarly when he decided that's it. There's no way Sam is ever going to be my heir. And he... Cut bait, perhaps, at that point. That's when he started thinking of Dickon or whether Dick, I don't think Dickon was very old at that point, but he was born, I think. And this is when he starts to formulate the plan to push Sam aside or force him to take the black or whatever. He was supposed to stay on the Arbor, whereas Horace Redwine was going to come stay at Hornhill. And I don't think that Randall wanted to go through that embarrassment again. He wasn't going to go try, you know, quote-unquote, shopping Sam around to other houses after this embarrassing thing for him. This is very much seems like how Tywin would react. The embarrassment is just so over the top for him that it motivates him greatly. It's interesting too that this uh, Desmera Redwine is the girl that he was almost married to. And Davin Lannister, Jamie's cousin, who we'll meet later in this book, he was also an option to marry her, but Tywin arranged for him to marry a fray instead after the red wedding.
1: I think kind of fun fact. Yeah, Mary Redwine is twice a great grand uh, niece of Elena. Oh, that's
0: cool. She's <laughs> also
1: kind of an abomination. Yeah, I guess so.
0: Yeah, Elena <laughs> is Paxter's aunt. That's right. So yeah. she, she descends from both sides of that. Yeah,
1: she's yeah exactly. Her right, aunt yeah. Haber and Hora, all of them are are twice over related to Elena. Maybe
0: that's why no one wants to marry her. But what, <laughs> I think it's funny because the Arbor is crazy, crazy rich. So it's like, why is no one marrying this girl? <laughs> it's even mentioned that she has a generous dowry. It's like, what? <laughs> it seems like people should be, would be lining up. So we get a a, a moment here that <laughs> a couple a couple of weeks ago we were talking about how the red wine twins weren't so bad. But we get uh, an example where maybe they are that bad. The, the red wine twins, one of them arms a kitchen girl with his armor. And she proceeds to defeat Sam in the yard. And then they reveal who it is, and everyone laughs. And Sam is, of course, super ashamed about it. On the other hand, these were like 12 year olds, 13 year olds. So, kind
1: of interesting. They put a kitchen girl in armor.
0: That is kind of interesting.
1: I, just, you know, was, did she fight ever a little bit? Uh, you, they were probably laughing at her just as much. I don't know.
0: It's kind of neat, or not neat, but uh, curious for maybe sure. Maybe they
1: had a little more depth there than we we're reading into it, that they were friends with her.
0: Yeah, maybe. I I don't know. So, but either way, you know, we're not going to judge them what they did as 12-year-olds. So, but maybe they're maybe they are scumbags. We just (laughs) maybe we misread them. We'll see. We'll keep an (laughs) eye out for more evidence. Uh, The the most recent evidence is them both falling in love with Marjorie and wanting to be on her Kingsguard. So there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that that's not much to you can't say much about that at all. That's just kind of a neutral thing. Like, hey, I get falling in love with Marjorie. (laughs) That makes sense. But there is a parallel example here that Nina discovered. So let's quote that. This is uh, back in Fire and Blood during the time of Jaehaerys and Alisan.
1: Balon persisted for a year at the king's insistence. The more he drills, the worse he looks, the spring prince confessed. One day, mayhaps in an attempt to spur Vagon into making more of an effort, he brought his, his sister Alyssa to the yard, shining in man's mail the princess had not forgotten the incident of the Arbor Gold. Mm -hmm. Laughing and shouting mockery, she danced around her little brother and humiliated him half a hundred times whilst Princess Dale looked down from a window. Shamed beyond endurance, Vagon threw down his sword and ran from the yard, never to return.
0: Vagon eventually becomes Archmaester Vagon. So that... Definitely feels like it could be a parallel to Sam. It's like, sure. I'll show
1: you. I'll show all of you.
0: <laughs> Vagon is kind of scummy. I mean, not like a, a dirt bag. Like, he's not like a rapist or anything. He's just a jerk. So he's not like Sam in that regard. But, and well, it's funny that Arbor Gold is mentioned here too, because Arbor Gold, we associate lies and Arbor Gold. Also the Arbor is indeed the, the area we're referencing here with the red wine. So it all fits together so very nicely. Let's not forget, too, Jeharis, the old king, was a, a good king, but he was a bad father. If reading about him in Fire and Blood is, I mean, he's no Randall Tarley or Tywin, but he's, part of his reputation is undeserved because that side of his life, well, good thing Alessand was the mother, because she's a good mother. Narcosis Dane, the wet star, great name, by the way, says, Sam is left-handed. When he was sick on the ship the first time he went to the rail and the wind got him, the next time he went to the right rail. That means he naturally went to the left rail first. And when he went to smash that mouse that he didn't actually smash, he picked up the book with his left hand. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Okay, that is the end of Samwell 2. Let us move on to Jamie 2. This one is the one where Jamie argues with everyone, a.k.a. the gang sends Tywin home. Kevin, Cersei, Loras... He doesn't argue with Lancel so much as mock him, but the point is Jamie's state of mind and the uphill climb he's facing. He's one of the few people being reasonable in King's Landing. And that can really drive you mad a bit, being the only reasonable person, which is kind of funny to think about. It's ironic that being reasonable in the face of so much unreasonability can make you even less reasonable than the rest. But he's holding it together. But he's not being reasonable about everything, in part because, well, how could you when there's so much insanity going on around you? These Cersei-Ares vibes are scaring the hell out of him. They're really deeply concerning. One of the very few things I praise Tywin for is putting up with Ares for all those years. That is a hard job, no doubt. Following in Tywin's footsteps in unexpected ways here is what Jamie's doing. And, well, Tywin is where we'll start.
1: Lord Tywin Lannister had entered the city on a stallion, his enameled crimson armor polished and gleaming, bright with Gems and gold work.
0: Joe Buckley says, What's really astounding is this is our last Jamie's King's Landing chapter. Essentially, he's going to start off his third chapter at King's Landing, but leaves. So, this is his last full chapter in the city and his fir- full chapter, last full chapter with Cersei. And it's the end of our two POV staple for King's Landing. Almost always we've had two POVs at the same time at King's Landing, sometimes more. Ned, Arya Sansa, Tyrion Sansa, Tyrion Jamie, Cersei Jamie. To be left with only one lens is going to be a much different experience. And Cersei is a foggy lens because she's lies to herself and gets lied to a lot and et cetera. So you have to work extra hard to figure out what's happening in her chapters. But hey, that's fun. Now, George does offset of that a little bit with the Kevin epilogue, but that's not for quite a while. And of course, it's definitely going to only be that one chapter since he's killed in it. We have other candidates for, for King's Landing POVs. Griff, Arianne, one of the Stark sisters, Brienne or Jamie coming back. Maybe one of the Sand Snakes. Probably not that they're not likely to be POVs, but definitely some options there. As we kick off this chapter, it's funny that it's finally the actual goodbye to Tywin. It feels like we've been saying goodbye to him for several chapters, but that's partly because He's such a powerful man whose impact on the story and these characters is so huge. It's it's not just going to leave quickly. It's, it's almost like a s- symbolic of how long Tywin's legacy is going to linger. Because even when he dies, it takes several chapters to actually send him away. Here's the quote.
1: The funeral procession departed King's Landing through the gate of the gods, wider and more splendid than the Lion Gate. The choice felt wrong to Jaime. His father had been a lion. That no one could deny. But even Lord Tywin never claimed to be a god.
0: And Cersei isn't thinking that way either. Um, Cersei's having a lot of power go to her head. She's thinking she's better than her father, but she's also not proclaiming herself a god. Daenerys has not thought of herself as a god, but wondered if this is what a god feels like. And she may have thoughts that go even farther than that. Euron, however, who we're about to meet on screen for the first time in a couple chapters, maybe he doesn't say he's a god, but he seems to be aiming for godhood. <laughs> so <laughs> there are people with even greater ambitions than that. Nina points out, she wonders if Tywin's corpse departing to the Gate of the Gods is less about Tywin claiming to be a god and more about the extent to which the Lannisters are doomed by the gods. The gods saw Tywin oversee the massive and blood-breaking of right. With the Red Wedding and the Lannisters broke so many other traditions and the incest. This is a lot of taboos that the gods supposedly care about that the Lannisters are responsible for. So, hmm. Neen also says it's quite unsubtle to have Tywin's funeral cortege, cortege, referred to as a, quote, river of red. (laughs) Yeah, Tywin spilled lots of blood in his lifetime to not just get the Lannisters in power, but to keep them there. He was uh, he didn't take many chances, and that often meant killing off people that maybe didn't need to be killed, but that's ruthlessness for you. A big part of this chapter is noting that the Tyrells have, have left or slash are leaving. Olena's gone, Allery's gone, Garland Tyrell's gone, Mace and Mathis Rowan ride off to Storm's End. Although important to note that Mace is just gonna come right back because of Marjorie's arrest. Mathis Rowan is still gonna keep the siege going while Mace is back to King's Landing, which opens up the possibility that Mathis Rowan is going to switch sides when Aegon's army shows up at Storm's End. And we that happens off, off page during the Winds of Winter spoiler chapters. It's, sound, it's We're told that Aegon took Storm's End. We don't know how. We don't know what happened to Mathis Rowan, whether he was defeated, tricked, or he joined them, which I, I lean towards the latter. With all these lords and soldiers armies leaving. King's Landing seems, quote, almost deserted. And to add to that, men are massing to go to Dragonstone, 2,000 men there, and escorting Tywin's corpse, 100 crossbowmen, 300 men at arms. So just another 400 men here. It just lots small, little bits and large bits. It really adds up. <laughs> of course, <laughs> you can understand it isn't just a a matter of honor uh, for having this big escort for Tywin because he was the great lord of Castle Rock, but we all saw his armor, right? <laughs> you got to protect that. That is the fanciest <laughs> armor I've ever seen. It's like gemstones and gold. Like people would want to steal that. So
1: yeah, pretty- I mean, I'm sure people still do. There's got to be like a whole little side story of a heist, you know, <laughs> people staking it out, getting the gang together.
0: It reminds me of Alexander the Great's body. There was a big to-do over his body. When he died, the the guy who took over is, who tried to reform Alexander's empire on his death uh, did this big procession and had his body and they were going to have this long procession where it goes to be buried. And one of the other generals under Alexander Ptolemy steals the body, has soldiers go and steal it. And he goes and inters it in uh, Alexandria in Egypt, which was his kingdom that he got from the, the split of the empire. And he, and he defended it fiercely and kept it. And no one knows what happened to the body after that. Nina went through and, and detailed which houses we're accompanying Tywin West. We got the Craycalls with their boar sigil, the Liddens with their Badger, the Betleys with their Beetle, the Sarsfields and their Green Arrow, the Prestors and their Red Ox, the Yarwicks and their Crossed Halberds. Remember Yarwick, there's an Othel Yarwick who is the uh, the builder of um, at the wall. St- uh, Stack Spear and their Cross Spears, Myatt and the Tree Cat, Turnberry and the Strawberry, Harnell and the Monch, which is like, I didn't know what a Monch is, but Nina realized that. She knew that I wouldn't know what a manch was. Good, good play, Nina. She, she writes that it's a sort of detachable sleeve the sort a lady would give to a knight to wear as a favor an attorney. Oh, that's really cool. And then House Kenning, which has four sunbursts counterchanged. Now, remember House Kenning, because we're going to come back to House Kenning in, of all places, Victorians chapter. Now, here's a quote when Jamie talks to Lancell. This is a quote
1: that I just hear so clearly in Nikolai Koster-Waldau's, like, he has this drawl that he does, by (laughs) the way.
0: He's good at being sarcastic. Yeah, he
1: he. really, I I just heard it so clearly in his voice. But the quote is, that's just the thing a bride wants on her wedding night, said Jamie. a husband who knows how to do his duty.
0: There's that Lannister sarcasm (laughs) they're all so good at, and yes, Nikolai was good at that. So was Peter Dinklage, and so was Lena Headey. They They were well cast. This is kind of a love versus duty comment there, isn't it? And this is one of the few examples of Jamie being unreasonable. Like I said, most of the time he's being reasonable. Most of the time he's the adult in the room, but he's very wrapped up in, in Cersei's infidelity. And Lancel is his target there for that because he thinks that's one of the men that she slept with. And he's right about that one, even though he comes away from this conversation doubting it because he's like, how could she have slept with him? Of course, he's not thinking about how Lancel didn't look like that, you know, a year ago. Love versus duty. Uh, that's just the thing, that quote, by the way, a husband who knows how to do his duty on his wedding night. That sounds like a, a Stannis thing, right? Take notes, Stannis. <laughs> Here's a little section that I would refer to as the Knights of Autumn when Jamie takes some time to watch the men jousting. This is where he thinks, by the way, that jousting is three quarters horsemanship, which is often cited as a clue about Liana being the Knight of the Laughing Tree because she was an amazing Horsewoman, despite most of these names of these jousters that Jamie's watching being unfamiliar. And one of them sounds like a young person's name, Beardless John Bentley. That sounds like something they would call a teenager. But that's just just a nickname. He's actually a veteran like a lot of these others. The Blackwater changed a lot of people's lives forever. Every man we see in this jousting business here, they're all Blackwater veterans now. So they are no longer Knights of Summer. And these are the ones left with so many others leaving. Everyone else is going to Dragonstone or going to Storm's End or going west with Tywin's body or whatever. That might be bad for these guys left behind because, well, who knows what's going to happen to King's Landing, but these are the guys in charge of, or at least will we'll probably be in the front lines if King's Landing is attacked by Aegon or whoever. The Sparrows. <laughs> Loris shows his incredible skills again in this one, and we know too that by now, it's not just a practice yard thing. He too has seen real action fought in real combat. I love the white book scene with him and Jamie because it's it's another example of using history to face the future, which is just, I just love whenever that happens. But the larger point Jamie's trying to make to Loris when they're having their little debate about past King's Guard and all that, on top of the smaller point about not judging a King's Guard by how long he lived, but by how long his king did, is that fame. And infamy aren't all they're cracked up to be. Opinion doesn't matter. The job does. This is a very core and half-hand type speech right here. That's what he's learned after all these years, despite the Kingslayer name thrown in his face and all the stuff about broken oaths, He'd do it again if he'd have to, and he might have to with Cersei. What matters is, being a Kingsguard, fulfilling those duties. Whether other people think you fulfilled them is not as important as whether you actually did. Again, it sounds exactly like what Corinne Halfhand said to John. Our honor is coined to be spent for the realm. We are, we are servants. We're guards. We're warriors. We're not you know, trying to be popular. And it, it's fitting that a guy with half a hand is, is being called up by a guy with one hand. Loris has a, a line here that we want to pay attention to.
1: Betted the king's mistress and died screaming. The lesson is, men who wear white breeches need to keep them tightly laced.
0: Take note, Arius Oakheart and Jamie Lannister, I suppose. So <laughs> yeah, that's a good line, but Loras gets in a few jabs of his own there. He's not, Jamie doesn't completely dominate him in this argument. He's, he's a little out of sorts. He's definitely, Jamie throws all these names at him that he's never heard of before, but this is definitely a point for Loras with that note. A lot of people get named. The one that calls that name up in particular is Luca the Lusty. Also Terrence Toyne, I suppose, gets mentioned, both of whom were men caught sleeping around, especially Terence, who slept with one of the King's mistresses. That was a no-no. Eamon the Dragon Knight, Alan Connington, Ryan Redwine, The Great Heart, Barriston, Selmy, the Demon of Dairy, Gwen Corbray, Terrence Toyne, Giles Great Cloak, or Grey Cloak, the Open Handed, Long Tom Costain, who Lasted 60 years on the Kingsguard, Donald of Duskendale, Addison Hill, the White Owl, Michael Mertens, Jeffrey Norcross, a.k.a. Never Yield, Red Robert Flowers. Just really cool names. Just really spins the mind thinking about these different heroes. Some good notes here from Nina on these guys. A couple of them we have extra info on. Um, we don't know about most of them, a- apart from Addison Hill serving under Aegon I. We know a lot about lucamore Strong, Lucamore the Lusty, and Kristen Cole. We'll talk about Kristen more in a minute. Uh, Donald Duskendale was in the hedge Knight. He was one of the three Kings' Guard at the Tourney of Ashford. And uh, he slew Humphrey Breesbury during the fight. He was one of the survivors. The Great Heart. Who the heck is that? Nina guesses that it might be a Corbray because they have a heart sigil. So that's a really good guess. I think it could be Gwynne Corbray because he fought Damon Blackfire and lasted a long time, which is, it's hard for anyone to last a long time against Gwaine Corbray. But I believe he's mentioned separately here. So hes it's probably two different people. Tom Costain, 60 years, maybe was, uh, he might have been, he, he may have come in under Baylor after some of the Kingsguard were slain during Daron the first invasion of Dorne. Of course, Daron was slain at a parlay, and at least one Kingsguard was killed then, if not two. Olivar Oakhart was the one that I'm thinking of. I think there might have been a second one. I'm not sure if he was named, though. And Aemon the Dragon Knight was there, too, but he was taken captive. So here's something we got to push back against Kevin Lannister here. Kevin uh, has his argument with Jamie, and there's a few things he says that are right on, but he's he's pretty wrong when he talks about the Kingsguard. He says it once it went without saying that the Kingsguard were good and valiant knights though. Well, valiant, yeah, but good, that's debatable. The Kingsguard has been problematic throughout the entirety of its history. Maladon Moore and Owen Bush obeyed Magor's orders to, retrain, to restrain Cerise Hightower and cut out her tongue, which... Ended up killing her because they didn't do a very good job of it. They were sloppy. Luca More Strong was found guilty of marrying three separate women, right? Kristen Cole murdered Joffrey Lonmouth and probably Lyman Beesbury. Amory Peak tried to forcibly arrest Lara Rogar for no crime whatsoever. Mervyn Flowers just stood there while a sellsword named Tesario the Tiger probably murdered Jahera Targaryen. Joffrey Staunton threatened McGuette's blacksmith wife into letting her be taken on by Aegon IV as his mistress, the Kingsguard have enabled crappy behavior by the kings or on their own throughout the institution's history. It is not just, you know, Robert's Kingsguard, Cersei's Kingsguard, Joffrey's Kingsguard that turned bad. In fact, arguably, king's Kingsguard, while definitely valiant and good warriors and loyal, there's a lot of reasons to condemn them for that because they were loyal to someone awful. It's one of the great questions that Jamie wrestles with throughout his arcs that we keep coming back to is what is actually... A good knight. What is actually a good Kingsguard? It's probably not just pure obedience. That's probably not the way Westeros does it. So Kristen Cole, second mention ever. Jamie calls him the the best and the worst. He has no mentions in A Dance with Dragons, but lots of mentions in The World of Ice and and Fire and Fire and Blood, et cetera. Quite a lot, of course. He's a huge thing. We've talked about him, we've brought him up in a number of different episodes. He's a really interesting character. Here, the chapter ends almost abruptly. We're talking about him and Perhaps it's a reverse. Jamie might be aiming to be a reverse Kristen Cole, meaning he's the Kingslayer and Kristen Cole is the kingmaker. That is kind of an opposing thought, isn't it? Cole's career started off really well. He was the best knight in the realm, arguably, for quite a while, but the way his career played out, he ended up persona non grata. He ended up hated and disgraced. Jamie maybe is doing the opposite path, starting off disgraced, starting off a Kingslayer, but... Ever since, he's been slowly getting better. And as we've become uh, started seeing inside his head, we've only seen that escalate. He's definitely not a, I wouldn't necessarily call him a good man, but he is on the path towards being much better. And by comparison to the people around him, he he could call him a good man, probably. Either way, it fits brilliantly with the upcoming chapters of the King's Moot, where a king is made and Arian's kidnapping of Myrcella, called the Queenmaker, doesn't quite work out, but it's, Similar type of plot, right? Another little tidbit in this chapter is Lollies and Bronn and the new, their, uh, Lolis's bastard child, Tyrion Tanner. Joe thinks that maybe this is just Bronn tweaking Cersei, knowing that she won't be able to res- resist reacting and that Cersei being, uh, not skilled when she is angry, something that Bronn probably knows because. He's witnessed it himself, plus Tyrion flat out told him a few times. Tyrion has kind of given Braun the dossier on Cersei over, over the course of their working together. So I think he might, the suggestion is that maybe this is sort of Braun creating chaos in order to climb the ladder because he knows Cersei is going to screw things up or at least expects it. And it, it's a worthy gamble, maybe. Nina suggests this chapter is the flip side to Cersei 3, which is the last one. And we're about to have Cersei 4 next. Cersei in that chapter was so distressed about the secret she won't tell Jaime the Valonqar prophecy. Jaime here is distressed about the secret he won't tell Cersei, which is what really happened at the end with Aerys. It's really quite interesting that they're so close, but neither of them has ever told the other this one really, really deep dark secret, and it's really harming their ability to communicate because they both think the other is just being a little over the top, and they don't. Neither of them have this awareness of this deep traumatic thing that's. Bothering them and affecting a lot of how they behave, so they both kind of just see the other as being a little silly for being concerned about these things. But that's because they don't know the story; they don't know the full story. And of course, it's very troubling for Jamie to see Cersei acting more and more like Aerys. They keep on coming, right? We're last chapter, he told her so to her face. We went through a lot of Cersei Aerys parallels last time in detail. This time, we're seeing it more from Jamie's side, someone who knows Aerys as, as well as anyone, and it's bad. You know, maybe it's not quite Red Wedding level in terms of when we looked back, we're like, wow, there was a lot of foreshadowing for the Red Wedding. And it's starting to look like, wow, there is a lot of foreshadowing for Cersei being like Aries. Maybe right now it doesn't reach that level, but we haven't seen the whole thing play out. By the time it's all done, we might be like, wow, that was even more foreshadowing than the Red Wedding. But yeah, we just don't know yet. Cersei's arc is far from over. Jamie's too. We'll have to see. And I'm excited to, to see it. It's almost comedic at one point. She she literally acts just like Ares while claiming, I'm not like Ares. A weak ruler
1: needs a strong hand, as Ares needed father. A strong ruler requires only a diligent servant to carry out his orders. She swirled her wine. Lord Helene might suit. He would not be the first pyromancer to serve as the king's hand.
0: <laughs> ha. She's saying she doesn't need a hand because she's a strong ruler, unlike Ares, despite acting exactly like Aries most of the time. Although, an a, a g- example that maybe isn't like Aries is the wine swirling. She's drinking a lot, right? We pointed that out before and it seems like there's you can really tell in her next chapter when we get there that, that it seems to be impacting her. It, it, that's not an Aries thing as far as I can tell. I don't I don't have any information that suggests Aries was a, a big drinker. Nonetheless, drinking is a sign that she's coping and needing to cope. It argues against the uh, the notion that she's a strong ruler. He thinks about that as very troubling too, obviously, and hypocritical, since she, quote, scorned Robert Baratheon for his drinking. So she's being, <laughs> it's like, well, uh, <laughs> if you scorned him for being a king that was drunk all the time, and here you are being a queen that's kind of drunk all the time. He notes this while she's mocking his missing hand again, and after she had just been mocking Pycelle. So this is... And this is more Ares. Ares was known to appreciate mockery, especially when it was aimed at Tywin, of all people, by the way. And of course, even more so, more than mockery, Ares loved that wildfire. And well, quote, She stood with
1: one hand on her breast, her lips parted, her green eyes shining. She is crying, Jamie had realized. But whether it was from grief or ecstasy, he could not have said.
0: We know from her point of view that it was both. More ecstasy than grief, though. She was thinking of Joffrey and nursing him and how the wildfire was just tearing away all her rage and fear and pain. It's, yeah, Jamie's right to be disturbed here. And here's more of his thoughts on it. The sight had filled
1: him with disquiet, reminding him of Aerys Targaryen and the way a burning would arouse him. A king has no secrets from his Kingsguard. Relations between Ares and his queen had been strained during the last years of his reign. They slept apart and did their best to avoid each other during the waking hours. But whenever Ares gave a man to the flames, Queen Rayella would have a visitor in the night. The day he burned his mace and dagger hand, Jamie and John Derry had stood at guard outside her bedchamber whilst the king took his pleasure.
0: If he could see in Cersei's mind, it would disquiet him even more as the parallels to Ares are even stronger there. It's not just circumstantial, it's straightforward. What makes it so difficult and troubling and isolating for Jaime is that only a few living persons know how terrible Ares was. So it's not like he can go share this with someone and, and commiserate. And Cersei knew him far less than Jaime did. So his awareness is, is tops there. Only like Pycelle and Varys and Barristan know Ares as well or more. And Pycelle is now dead. I mean, not in this chapter, but of course, dead in the story. Varus isn't going to help him. Barristan is on the other side of the narrow sea there by, you know, in Slaver's Bay. So he's not going to talk to any of them. So seeing anyone start to act like Ares must be just deeply, deeply, utterly disturbing. But not just Ares. It's his twin sister and his lover. It's not just anyone. It's really hard to fathom how hard this must be for him. The same conclusion he came to with Ares that the king needed to die, well, his mind can't go there now. It's it, it would be more heinous than Ares in the eyes of he oath, meaning killing Ares was real bad, being a kingslayer. But this is being a queen slayer and kin Now again, does Jamie care about that after the speech he gives to Loras, saying, No, I just gotta do what's right and not worry about what people think? Well, maybe, but how how's he gonna get to that point where he thinks it's right to kill his own sister? He doesn't, he can't even bring himself to think about it here. Notab- I mean, we all are thinking about it. It's very straightforward but Jamie can't bring himself to even imagine it. I think he might eventually later, but so far in none of his chapters that I can recall we will double check on that as we move forward has he considered killing her himself. Nina with an interesting catch here. The first time he first time Jamie hears the dead 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 drum beats, it's immediately after he says, "I am not here for Cersei." She doesn't think that's a coincidence. It could be foreshadowing that when Jamie returns to King's Landing specifically for Cersei, specifically to kill Cersei. That'll be emphasized by those dead, dead, dead drum beats again when Kevin mentions Lancel, and Lancel, of course, is who Jamie thinks slept with Cersei, which he's right about. So that's interesting. Now I'm split on whether Cersei will and Jamie will, will have their final moments in King's Landing or in Castle Rock, but it doesn't really matter in terms of this theory and looking at the foreshadowing of the drum beats, which, were, of course, drum beats was a pretty big deal for the Red Wedding as well. So I could see that for sure. When Jamie thinks of the Mason dagger hand being burned, that's Carlton Chelsted, who was named hand after John Connington was exiled. And then after Carlton Chelsted was burned, that's when Rossart the Pyromancer was named. So this is why Jamie's like, Shh, I had to kill that guy. <laughs> and another contradictory oath comes up within Jamie's mind here. He is nearly overcome by that same night we just referred to when the king took his pleasure after. Uh, burning Carlton Shelstead. Here's the quote.
1: We are sworn to protect her as well, Jamie had finally been driven to say. We are. Very
0: allowed. But not from him. Not one of the people stepped in to save Rayella. That's when we were talking about earlier how everybody thinks Ares' Kingsguard was so great. Well, where were they for this? Only Jamie, the the Kingslayer, the guy reviled for this act. He's the only one that wanted to say something, that wanted to step in, that had that instinct even. The others had just put it aside somehow, and how do you do that? How do you just hear a woman being raped and just be like, eh, we can't do anything about that? That's hard to imagine. He thinks how her screams were worse than even Lord Chelstead's. I mean, that's how bad it was. This is a man who was being burned to death, and he, and, and Raella's screams were worse. Visceral thoughts like this can be so much more convincing than rational ones. We can say this is wrong and tell it with just intellect, but when he's actually hearing the screams, it's going to affect him a lot more deeply in a way that we can't personally imagine unless we have something like that in our own history, which don't go there, right? You know we don't need this to be real. We need to keep this in the fantasy realm. But Ares was going to blow up King's landing. that that clearly had to be stopped. I mean, I think most of us agree that Jamie did the right thing there. But this is a smaller example. Being King, seeing a king's guard stand by, while not just any woman, but the actual queen is violently raped is is more than a logical condemnation of these system of oaths. You can point to that and go, well, that's a flaw. But this is more than that. It's, a, it's visceral. It's, he's angry. It deeply affects him. He's like, this is bull. These oaths are nonsense. I can't believe it works this way. Jamie was unprepared for that reality of being a king's guard, especially under Ares, and at his age. His spirit was nearly broken by the realization that he was just a pawn in an old feud between his father and the king. What should have been one of the most proudest moments in his life is bitter because it was all a lie and worse. It wasn't just a matter of being less than advertised. It was the opposite. The Kingsguard morals aren't good. The Kingsguard's morals are whatever the King's morals are. If they're not honorable, or if the King's not honorable, then the Kingsguard aren't honorable. The King is evil. The Kingsguard are evil. They're an extension of him, the way these laws work. So to be a Kingsguard for an evil King means you have to have wrestled with this in your mind and prepared to accept that. John Derry was used to Aries being evil. He had accepted it. He stood outside that door, listened to Rayella screaming, and I don't know what was going through his head, but he had no, there was no way he was going to do anything about it. Maybe he never even cared in the first place. That could be a, con, a, a, that's a deep condemnation of this man that we don't know, but it's entirely possible. Jamie was coming to realize under Aries that to do his job well, he had to be a worse person. What a horrible contradiction. He's supposed to be a knight. How... How does that make any sense? The corruption of the stated ideals of knighthood. is like, I have to be a knight of the highest order of the Kingsguard. I have to dishonor myself. What? What? It, it just, it's enough to make a person say, Sandor Clegane is right. Another poignant and direct connection comes here in this thought. Quote.
1: Let him be king over charred bones, cooked meat, Jamie remembered, studying his sister's smile. Let him be the king of ashes.
0: So... I think, like I said before, most people, if not almost everyone, believes that Jamie was right to turn on Ares. If, if if it wasn't heroic, it was at least correct. What, how will we feel when it's Cersei? Will it be correct? Will it be heroic? I guess it depends on the circumstances, but it's going to be a lot more emotional. Hmm. So when Ares was uh, forcing Raella that night, well, we have this follow up quote that gives us an interesting clue.
1: Jamie had only seen Rayella once after that. The morning of the day she left for Dragonstone, the queen had been cloaked and hooded as she climbed inside the royal wheelhouse that would take her down Aegon's high hill to the waiting ship. But he heard her maids whispering after she was gone. They said the queen looked as if some beast had savaged her, clawing at her thighs and chewing on her breasts. A crowned beast, he knew. I was bringing up the kind of weird similarity in the idea of Ares, you know, sacrificing, like in quote someone to the fires, to the flames, mm. and then going to have sex and conceive a child. Like coming right off of that. And just like that made me think of like Melisandre and that sort of concept.
0: Absolutely, and then yeah.
1: John Hagee went in, he was like talking about how, you know, thinking that was the night Danny was conceived and that maybe there was a bit of fire magic there. Um, Marty Davidson was talking about, well, maybe he wanted to birth a dragon. Other people agreed. um, And then Zasim Baji talked about the balance of taking a life to attempt to make a life, you know, that similarity. But I liked this point from um, Dornish Dame, who said... It's interesting to think about the idea of Raella's pregnancy being bookended by two deaths. This one, if it coincided with Danny's conception and Raella's own death in childbed.
0: Uh, that, yeah.
1: and then finally John Hagee again brings up the idea that pyromancy could have you know roots in relore, and that Ares's pyromancer unknowingly perhaps used a little bit of fire magic.
0: That's possible. Yeah. I brought up last time too that just Ares's association with Summerhall when yeah. wildfire broke out rhaegar was born so he may associate that with like a healthy child being born yes um so yeah w- this is good job good conversation y'all that's really good stuff um it really does tie together interestingly so yeah i was going to say that crowned beast crowned dragon in Ares's case and cersei's being a crown lion which is also a crown beast i suppose and when we get to euron well that's a crown beast too a kraken in his case <laughs> Note that like Eamon did to, uh, when speaking of John, Kevin refers to Jamie as Lord Commander rather than calling him Jamie, which they're having in a quote unquote official conversation, but Jamie's trying to call him uncle, but Kevin's keeping his distance. And he does the same thing with calling Cersei her grace. <laughs> He's just cool all over, as Joe puts it. He's like, yeah, I'm not, I don't like y'all very much right now. <laughs> he doesn't exactly hide it, does he? This makes you feel for Jamie a bit, as has happened with Brienne and Storm, with Loras, with Edmure. Jamie's trying to do the right thing. Also, just a, a lot of times people just greet that notion with dis, with disbelief. They, they think his reputation is of a bad person, of a dishonorable man. So when he states his intention to do good things, they don't believe it. that's too bad because we know better. It's a prejudice he's been suffering ever since he became the Kingslayer. And this is worse though, because it's his own family. His own uncle is doesn't trust him. And even though he's like, I'm on your side, man, Cersei and I are like on the outs. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but
1: still the point remains. I can I totally get Kevin's side. Not even about the Kingslayer stuff, obviously. But I mean, they were abominations. They birthed abominations as the everyone in the realm agrees. It's true. They were they were in an incestual relationship. Kevin had to see it and yeah. like he maybe didn't have such rose colored glasses like maybe he saw it a long time before and was grossed out and of, yeah. So if I were Kevin, I don't think I would want to associate with myself with that part of the family.
0: Yes. I mean, he, he's willing to, but on his terms. So I agree with you. Like, if he's going to do it, he he's got, he gets to set some some boundaries and stuff like that. But Cersei's not about to. And then, Cersei of course, which of course,
1: like <laughs> the Cersei thing, that doesn't even have to do with your, but obviously the land sale Cersei part of things makes it even more personal. To yeah, Kevin. right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So last time I mentioned that Osmond hadn't slept with Cersei. I don't know that Osmond ever sleeps with Cersei. Cersei confesses to sleeping with all three of the kettleblacks, but she does that to not be caught in a lie in case they say they did. She's worried that they're going to claim they did sleep with her. And she doesn't want, you know, that hung over her head. And she's, so she's going to admit sleeping with one of them anyway. She figures it's not a big deal to go with all three. Osfrid is the one she definitely sleeps with. And that's implied here in her next chapter. So of course, Jamie doesn't know this yet, but when he sees Osmond in arms with Cersei while she watches the tower come down, he's thinking that they're sleeping together. And of course, Lancel, he's very wrapped up in that still. He's still thinking about it. It's it's bothering him. And it shows you that it's one of the very few things that he can't be rational about or that's it's that he's unreasonable about. He's got so many things he's doing, carrying out, carrying himself with dignity and honor, and doing things that I would agree with. But when it comes to his you know, wrapped-up feelings about Cersei, that's when he becomes a little unreasonable and a little a little opposite to the rest of himself, at least right now. A couple other mentions here. Uh, Cersei notes what's happening in the north a little bit, talking about Roose Bolton's bastard coming to free Moat Kalen. It's interesting how little we get of Ramsey in these in-between books, considering how prominent he was on TV. Of course, the show moves some things around in the timeline. Ramsey is going to be prominent, just not really until a Dance with Dragons. Uh, since he, although he obviously was prominent in Clash of Kings too, We hear about the Freys going up there. That's the first mention of that, I believe. And you, uh, Hostine Frey and Aenys Frey are headed up there. And well, we'll cover that when we get there. But this is the, the kickoff of that plot. We know that Victorian has just left Moat Kalen. So these things kind of tie together because we're about to have Victorian's chapter as well. Here's a, another take from Jamie about what he thinks about his sister.
1: His sister liked to think of herself as Lord Tywin with teats, but she was wrong. Their father had been as relentless and as implacable as a glacier, where Cersei was all wildfire, especially when thwarted.
0: That's a good take because, as I mentioned before, Tywin, one of the things I was willing to praise him on was his patience in dealing with Aerys. That would require huge amounts of patience, being insulted to his face constantly and just having to swallow insults, something that Kevin points out that I would agree with. But Cersei just a small insult sets her off, either internally or not. Sometimes just vocally, but even when not vocally, just in, in, within her mind, you see her just melt down a bit over small insults.
1: I like this the idea of I them. Mean, they compare them to a glacier, and I think of glaciers melting and the water flooding.
0: <laughs> it's causing massive damage. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. relentless. <laughs> that's, that's makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so, Joe Buckley says that it's a real hitting of the nail on the head there with that take on Cersei. And, And Jamie goes further, I'd say, by citing her lack of patience and judgment. Yeah, she's decent at sensing out people's intentions, but not very good at reacting to them with moves that make sense. She doesn't help herself much with this philosophy on the required strength of hands, which she says, yeah, I don't need, you know, a strong servant. I just need, you know, but then she picks Harry Swift. It just doesn't, it's bad logic. It's clear to see. Joe Buckley, of all people, mentions Crusader Kings 2. I'm the one who plays this every Friday as right. on a game stream. He says, now I'm a terrible Crusader Kings 2 player myself. I've still got no idea what's going on in that game, but I know that important offices can be given to people for political gain. That's pretty basic theory. But Cersei completely ignores that aspect as well. In the case of Kyber, okay, fair enough. He's pretty good at the job. But look at the optics of invited a disgraced maester, a former member of a band who brand brutalized your people onto your council. Can you not see what that says about you? No. In fact, the answer is no. She cannot see what that says about her. (laughs) Take from Nina here, it's funny how Cersei is almost on the right track sometimes but comes to the wrong conclusion. This is what I was saying about her sensing the secret but not how to deal with it. Cersei points out that Tana Merriweather is a, quote, a mother with a young son that she wants to rise high in this world and will, quote, do whatever is required to see that he does. That's accurate. But Cersei then missteps by assuming that Tana, quote, knows I can do more for her than Marjorie. Why does she know that? Why does she think that? Why is that true, Cersei? Well, I don't think it is at all. If Tana undermines the Tyrells, she undermines her own son's future because she's a Tyrell Bannerman and her fortunes are tied more to the Tyrells than Cersei. Tana has far more to gain as a Tyrell loyalist and informant as she does as a Tyrell betrayer because she's already at a disadvantage for a lot of reasons for being a foreigner. She has to be, she has to work twice as hard to be considered at the same level. There's a lot of mistrust of her. Because of that foreign stuff, this is again, us thinking of her a little bit like Soralla, who the, the lace serpent from Duskendale, who's also Mirish. Cersei also undermines her own position with Taina. Immediately, she talks about how Tana knows that she, Cersei, can do more for her Taina than Marjorie can, and then tells Jamie how much Tana would appreciate her. <laughs> It's like wait. Cersei restoring some of the lost Meriwether lands exactly as she assumes Tana is expecting of her. But Tana could rise a lot higher from the Tyrells by helping them take out Cersei. There's so much more to be gained there. A marriage to a Tyrell, a marriage, you know, a position at court something like that. Things that Cersei is not offering. The stuff that the, the, restoring lost Meriwether lands, Marjorie can do that. Why not? I mean she's going to be queen. Of course she could do that too. So that's not that's not something that only Cersei can offer. That's something that any well either queen can offer really. So she's not uh, she's not realizing that her advantages can be matched by Marjorie in some of these cases. Another mention of Rane Waters here. Jamie is concerned about her infidelity in that case as well. It's another example of Jamie's mind going all over the place when it comes to who she's been with. It's not entirely off the mark. He is someone looking at her and she's looking back. They're making eyes in the next chapter. Now they don't actually sleep together, but he uh, is getting favors because he's attractive and that is just not a good policy. And so Jamie's right to be concerned there, even though it's not quite what he thought it was. Tree Girl says that Jamie would pick uh, a good Kingsguard himself if he was allowed to select them because he's seen both the good and the bad. And this is a really good way to put it. Jaime is gaining humility while Cersei is gaining hubris. They're going in opposite directions in that regard. And that is a good way to put it. Now, I, one thing I would disagree with on that point, and of course, she doesn't mean that universally, an example of where Jamie is not gaining humility is when it comes to their relationship. We're not that far off from when Jamie was asking Cersei to declare their relationship official to the whole realm. That is not humble. <laughs> that is hubris because she's like, are you crazy? They would never accept that. We would be like burned at the stake. She doesn't say that exactly, but she's like, no way. Are you, are you kidding me? And she's right about that. That is not something they can do. So that is one of the things that she is correctly humble about while he has got the hubris there. Marty Davidson says, I think Jamie's excuse was that Ned wouldn't have believed him, but I think it would have been worth it to at least mention it now, seeing everyone's reaction to the King, King slang slash King's Landing slang.
1: <laughs> Which I think just gets to the point that, you know, it's been a long time yeah. for him to have just not talked about it to anyone.
0: Yeah, that's true. It, it was a big deal when he said it, when he told Brienne, yeah. But he's never told anyone else. That's, that's very interesting. And with that, we can move on. Cersei four, Dwarf Head, Giant Skull, aka the Queen's New Council. Another rapid-fire Cersei chapter. So much going on. The council scene does this by bringing up, as governing councils are wont to do, even bad ones, and this is a real bad one, a huge number of different plots. They go through a lot of different government issues, a lot of different political issues, and that allows us to speak to a lot of different issues, which we would like to do that. They put priority to different things that we would put priority to do. Our analysis is going to differ from the way the council analyzes these issues, of course. But we also see that Cersei is declining fast while thinking she's on the rise. It's quite a ride. Quote.
1: Three wretched fools with a leather sack, the queen thought as they sank to their knees before her.
0: So just in case anyone missed it, this is the same dwarf that Brienne met in Duskendale. So that's real sad. The nose is kind of a giveaway. Describes himself as a sparrow and has a distinct nose. So that's just so unfair, isn't it? Cersei doesn't even punish them for it. She doesn't want anyone to be discouraged from hunting Tyrion, even though if she were to punish these three guys, probably no one would even hear about it. So it probably wouldn't impact anyone else hunting for, for Tyrion. But she's so ruthless that she'd rather abscond with justice rather than reduce her chances of catching Tyrion by like a tenth of a tenth of a percent or something. Interesting, too, that uh, we get this note about her dressing up as Jamie and noticing how different she's treated, which is a really, really poignant memory. Quote. When she was
1: small, she would sometimes don her brother's clothing as a lark. She was always startled by how differently men treated her when they thought that she was Jamie, even Lord Tywin himself.
0: It's kind of wild that Tywin didn't, couldn't tell them apart like that. <laughs> it's almost a reversal of, of Brienne in a sense that She wanted to, she dressed up like a man and saw how a man was treated, whereas Brienne dresses up, quote unquote, like a man and is constantly told she needs to be wearing dresses and and all that. Just as Ares surrounded himself with flatterers and lick spittles, Cersei chooses to be lied to. We have Dornish Red and Arbor Gold and a fine sweet Hippocras from Highgard. The
1: gold, I think. I find Dornish wines is. Sour as the Dornish. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is a huge moment. She's saying, I want to be lied to, right? She chooses Dornish Red or, or chooses Arbor Gold over Dornish Red and Sweet Hippocras. The truth being sour, I suppose you could say, is what she's rejecting. She wants the sweet. <laughs> she she wants to be lied to. Arbor gold means lies. It's just he's choosing to be lied to. It's very much like Aries because Aries made his council full of flatterers and lickspittles, right? And here we go. Let's go through the council here. Jamie's not there. He's still the Lord Commander of the King's Guard and they have a place on at the table, but he's getting fitted for his new hand and he gets mocked for that and Cersei laughs and is like, "Yeah, that's good. If they laugh at him, he'll be less effective." Like, this is still your brother, like a possible ally. So she's immediately just making an enemy out of him same as she does Kevin just right away. Doesn't No, there's no like, "Well, maybe I could win him back." No, there's no come back around, maybe we can smooth this over. She's just a bridge burner constantly. Kyburn is Master Whispers now. He's gotten the official title of Lord, kind of like Varus, where he's not Lord of any lands, but it's a, it's a courtesy. So even though what's funny about that is uh, all the different titles have changed, but this not this one. This one is still Master Whispers, but she uses Eastern styles for a lot of the others. It's funny how she kind contra- of contradicts herself here. She's... Confident that Kyburn has inherited Varus's legacy here, that she's just he's paying the same people and has picked up where Varus left off and thinks that it's just a matter of being in the right place. <laughs> and she thinks that she's constantly worried that Tyrion could still be in the walls, not thinking that Varys could be, even though she earlier was scared of him and had a chill went through her down her spine when she thought about Varus being her enemy. But she's kind of already forgot about that. And then a minute later, she's like, Varus would have known when they bring up I don't even know what, but it doesn't matter because two seconds ago she's like, Kybern and Shirley just has picked up everything Varus did. Yet now she's just condemning them for for not knowing what Varus would know. So as Joe points out, she can't keep track of her own prejudices here. Harry Swift, hand of the king. Oh my goodness, this guy is such a dummy. He has a chicken sigil. He looks and acts like one. And here's that line:
1: A weak ruler needs a strong hand. As Ares needs father, a strong ruler requires only a diligent servant to carry out his orders.
0: This guy is not a diligent servant. This guy, again, is a dummy. And he's not only a dummy, but he's kind of a coward. (laughs) That line, a strong ruler requires only a diligent servant, kind of reminds me of a strong king acts boldly, which Joffrey said and probably came from Cersei, even though it was blamed on Robert. She's partly doing it for the implied threat against Harry Swift because Harry's relative, I can't remember, I think it's his sister, is married to Kevin, Dorna Swift. So, But this is such a bad exchange. She's gaining a hostage at the cost of having a decent hand, like expending your hand to the coin slot on a hostage is a really steep price. She continues to mock and push away Pycelle despite him having been a Lannister toady his whole life. Like, this guy could be an ally to you, but you just keep pushing him away. And it's another example of how she just doesn't want to hear complaining. She doesn't want to hear about problems, even if they're important problems. She doesn't want to hear about that. She would rather be lied to and drink that sweet wine. Or Waters is master of ships, but now called Lord Admiral as part of these title changing, as part of her remaking things in her own image the way she wants it to be. There will be no masters other than her. They can be lords, but not masters. So Orayne is Grand Admiral or Lord Admiral, whatever you want to call him. It's the same age his probable ancestor Daemon Targaryen was when he was named to the small council as Master of Coin and four years older than his probable ancestor, Alan Valerian, when he was initially named Master Ships. And it seems like all three of these characters have a similar sense of humor. They're all a little bit sarcastic. So it might be a little nod from George there, keeping them together like that. Cersei daydreams about how he looks like Rhaegar. <laughs> like Arianne, we have a rare example of a woman abusing her position of authority with her sexuality in a world where the opposite is far more common. She thinks how men do this sort of thing, which is a, almost as damning, in fact, might be more damning of men, even though she's the guilty one here, because she's doing it in part because she sees men do it all the time. She thinks about, well, this is what men would do. And she thinks about this is a man's world and how she's constantly thinking about how she'd have been better off if she had been the one born as a man rather than her brother. And this is one of her stronger personality traits that she doesn't address herself. She has a lot of self-hatred. And this is part of it. Part of she, she has some of the same misogyny that is prominent in her culture. It's like internalized misogyny. She doesn't necessarily realize that's what it is. But... She's picked up on a lot of the woman-hating that's common in Westeros. Her lust also reminds us of Ares and Tyrion, right? So the lustiness of Cersei is uh, coming out, but it, it's, it's, it reminds her of people that she doesn't want to be like, even though she doesn't actually have this realization. So meanwhile, Oraine Waters, while she's making eyes with him, During the council, he's recruiting criminals and, like, getting guys out of the dungeons to be his crewmen. And later turns pirate. Oh, we couldn't have seen that coming. (laughs) Okay, and who spoke out against it? Pycelle. I guess you should have listened to Pycelle. What were we saying about that? Orton Merriweather is her justiciar, which used to be called Master of Laws. That's Tana's husband. Guess who else had a hand to the king uh, that was a Merriweather? Ares. Okay. Her Master of Coin, a.k.a. Lord Treasurer now, is Giles Rosby. We've talked about him before. He won't, won't be around much longer. In fact, when he dies, Harry Swift will be demoted from hand to Master of Coin, and then he'll go off to Bravos, where we'll see him in the Mercy Chapter. Cersei thinks about how she gave her counselors these Free Cities-esque titles. Nina wonders if maybe that was Tana Merriweather's suggestion. She's from Myr and would have grown up around those titles and... It's another tie to her acting a bit like Sorala Darklin, who was apparently encouraging Lord Darklin to get the type of city charter for Duskendale. That was what the dispute with Ares was over. The defiance of Duskendale was they wanted to let the city grow to be larger, which is reminiscent of the way the free cities exist. So that is an interesting idea, because Cersei isn't necessarily worldly like that, So, but she is the type to seize on suggestions that sound good to her like that, that increase her splendor, or that enable her to look like she's taking charge. But it is mostly just a cosmetic change, renaming the titles. She doesn't change how the jobs work. They're still the same jobs. I mean, the, the change, the real change is that she's appointing bad people to the council, Uh, Not that we haven't had bad people on the council before, but this is a particularly awful small council.
1: You know, it's like Cersei, she thinks she knows all about branding here.
0: (laughs) She just doesn't. (laughs) No, she doesn't. (laughs) Speaking of branding, check out Kyburn's new look.
1: He had garbed himself in something very like Maester's robes, but white instead of gray, immaculate as the cloaks of the Kingsguard. Whorls of gold decorated his hem, sleeves, and stiff high collar, and a golden sash was tied about his waist. He looks
0: fancy, doesn't? It's weird
1: he? to imagine when you think of the show, right? Yeah, to like think of that guy, like fancy. Yeah,
0: Kyburn just stayed looking like a maester on the show. Yeah, like, he just looked a little bit fancier, but not much. Yeah. So it's very meaningful in regards to Kyburn's new rose robes because the quote is immaculate as the cloaks of the Kingsguard, right? Well, we just got through a long talk about the Kingsguard and immaculate as the cloaks of the Kingsguard and how the white cloaks do not accurately describe their personalities. And here we go again, this white, immaculate as, as it is, Kyburn does not have any sort of goodness in him. You know, he's so he's probably the most evil guy here. It's debatable. While they're going through the different plots, they're uninformed about the Iron Islands. They're not aware of what's happening there now, but thankfully it's the next chapter. So that gets cleared up for the reader pretty quickly. But it's interesting that they don't know. They're also throwing the phrase under the bus, even though they were kind of an ally for Tywin. Cersei's kind of turning on them rather quickly by saying, yeah, maybe we should make an example out of one or two of them over the Red Wedding. Although in this case, she's not being, uh, she's being reasonably clever about it because she's, she's, she, Thinks that one of the phrase will be willing to sell out the rest of them, and she's just waiting for one of them to do that, and will take that opportunity. And that's another example of her being right. That probably will happen. And I, my my bet's Black Walder. I mean, the dude's already been murdering some of his brothers. So the Golden Company is mentioned here. The Golden Company's popping up all over the place in people's mentions. Uh, there's an assumption in this chapter that it's standing. What did I sound like Twitter? Huh? <laughs>
1: Yeah, that is exactly. I was like, they're popping up all over the place in people's mentions.
0: <laughs> ah, modern phrases working out for us here. What 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 is what does Westeros Twitter look like? Uh, 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 uh. So yeah, well, in it's, this, it's what
1: what what do sound do ravens make?
0: Oh yeah, it would be would the be- raven sound.
1: Oh, <laughs> I don't know.
0: Dark wings, dark tweets. <laughs> In this case, of course, the Golden Company, different people make different assumptions about the Golden Company. Arianne thinks it's related to Quentin. Now, here they think it's related to Stannis. They're like, well, it must be Stannis hiring the Golden Company. Aurain is corrected by Kyburn here. He says they were heading east, and Kyburn's like, no, they're heading west now because uh, they're heading towards Volantis. And I wonder if Aurain was lying or if he was just wrong. He was Probably he was just wrong, but he may have been trying to get the council to stop thinking about the Golden Company. Say, I don't worry about the Golden Company. And there's an important reason to think that because Randall Tarly, of all people, when the Golden Company does land in the Stormlands at the end of A Dance of Dragons, or as they're discussing it, rather, it comes a little before that, but this is the point at which they're talking about it in Kevin's epilogue chapter. Randall Tarly constantly downplays the Golden Company. He's like, ah, they're just swords. If it is even really them, blah, blah, blah. He's just, it's kind of ham-fisted. (laughs) <laughs> because it's, he's not very subtle about it. And Randall Charlie is a very subtle guy, I suppose. Uh, so there's a chance that maybe some of this is all working out behind, behind the scenes here. And perhaps that Orane is going to hook up with the Young Griff faction. We also get the mention of Davos and the false execution here. Boy, that's a, this one reads a lot different this time. First time through, you're like, wait, what, Davos is going to be killed off page? No. But of course, Red Herring... Not at all. So, we we hardly even need to discuss that other than to point out that Cersei's going to be fooled there, as well as a lot of other people. Uh, we have this quote Cersei favored him with a smile. She liked a bit of wit, so long as she was not its target. So, again, we have this thing about Aries <laughs> that just reminds us of Aries. She also thinks how men don't like to be laughed at. So, again, she's just having contradictory thoughts and not realizing it. She's like, it's good that people are laughing at Jamie. It's good that this and that. But she's like, yeah, but, you know, it really, men really just do react poorly to being laughed at. <laughs> this is part of why I think she might be drunk in this scene because she's. It, it, I, I sh- what I should have done is count how many times her glass was refilled. It's at least once, and it probably is happening without us seeing it as well. I mean, the whole thing about her, like, ignoring the council while she's staring at Orane and thinking about how handsome he is, like, that's. This, you're drunk, Cersei. <laughs> and if you're not drunk, it's even worse because it's like, wow, she's not paying attention and just thinking about being with this dude when it's like the first council meeting of her new council. Like, talk about, focus up, girl. (laughs)
1: She's just thirsty, okay?
0: (laughs) She is thirsty.
1: (laughs) She needs a bunch of drinks and a bunch of men. Leave her alone.
0: Raised here, but not fully explained, is Cersei thinking that she's going to make this maneuver with Balon Swan and Tyrion and, and Tristane. Here's the quote. His long wait
1: is almost done. I am sending Balon Swan to Sunspear to deliver him the head of Gregor Clegane. Sir Balon would have another task as well, but that part was best left unsaid.
0: So that long way, his long way, meaning Doran Martell, of course, getting the head of Gregor that he's wanted forever as, as uh, justice. You got to think Balon Swan is starting to learn what Jaime felt like under Ares, like, or, or, or just the other Guard having to do, having to fulfill orders that dishonor them. Balon, of all people, of all the Kingsguard to give this job to, this is a, another poor choice by Cersei. There's other Kingsguard who are scummy that would probably be a better call for this. Balon's the most honorable of the batch, except for maybe Loras, but she's not going to send Loras to do this for obvious reasons too, because she doesn't trust him. The plan is to murder Tristane and blame Tyrion for it on the, when they're on their way back. Like, geez, her way out of the marriage to Dorne is a not well-planned murder. This is rough, man. <laughs> I mean, another ally, or at least someone that is on the cusp of being an enemy, is she's just pushing them away, right? Like, ugh. They're not gonna, they're not gonna be fooled. They're, they're gonna totally blame you, Cersei. They're not gonna believe this Tyrion business. When we go to Sunspear later, we're gonna see that, yeah, Balon's gonna deliver it. And that is yet another example of the capital getting weaker because Balon is... One of the best Kingsguard, not just in honor, but as a warrior. So, just it's another little person, another little example of of Kings Landing getting weaker in terms of military strength. So, when she's thinking of the dead High Septon, she also thinks of Tyrion associated with this, and she thinks, "quote."
1: No bells will ring for you, Tyrion, Cersei thought.
0: Because the bells were tolling for the High Septon. But bells, you say? We've all been a lot more wary of any mention of bells this time through. And Tyrion, when he does return to Westeros, it's probably going to be associated with someone for whom bells mean a lot more. And, well, this could be there could be bells ringing for Tyrion, or at least they could ring in a way that inf- affects him deeply, emotionally, plot-wise, etc. Hmm. But let's talk about the High Septon here because the bells were ringing for him. And, but first off, this is a real sneaky line.
1: Do not discount this man, Lucian, Kyburn said. Last night, he feted 30 of the most devout on suckling pig and arbor gold. And by day, he hands out hard bread to the poor to prove his piety. hmm
0: Well, so we know this Lucian guy isn't going to get the job because the High Sparrow does. They're, of course, discussing a new... Uh, High Septon, but mm-hmm, this guy Lucian is his last name is Frey. That's right. Okay. This is a one of Walder's brood. So wow, the Freys came close to also almost grabbing the High Septon spot. In addition to River Run and all of these marriages to the Lannisters, like, what a massive jump in power they're having! But of course, that's probably he, George is probably pumping them up in order to bring them down a bit.
1: I'm really picturing after you brought up CK2 earlier, yeah, that you know, in, in a Song of Ice and Fire, what's going on here is that House Frey is being played by someone. <laughs> <laughs> so they're having right. all these kids, you know, they're part of all these plots and killing people,
0: <laughs> marrying every family they can. Yeah, give. every yeah.
1: single family all, the, all the blood. Power centers, yeah, yeah. <laughs> House Frey is like the standard CK2 player. We're all Walter Frey, I guess. <laughs>
0: This is one of the examples of a Cersei murder that might actually qualify as paranoia. I've been back and forth on certain of these things saying they're not truly paranoid. Some of them are. If you're trying to defend it from a pragmatic stance, she knows Lancel has left the capital now. If she was worried that Lancel had told the High Septon about what happened between them and about Robert, well, she can't stop him from talking to someone else. But if this High Septon is dead... Maybe the new, Lancel will never come back to the capital, and he'll never tell the new High Septon. So she's hoping to maybe to delay the information spreading to the point where it never gets spread. But she would rather have to have uh, rather not have a High Septon that knows these things. Of course, of course, replacing this guy with the High Sparrow is going to work out horribly. One of the things that is working against the ghost town feel of King's Landing is as the soldiers and Tyrells and others are leaving we've got sparrows coming in. So that's sort of replacing the population uh, uh, in that sense. So the ghost town feel is starting to ebb away a little bit. On the other hand, the sparrows are bringing with them many, many bones. They're, when Cersei goes to confront the new high sparrow, she's going to see there's bones all over Baylor's steps because they, they want justice for the slain. And that, talk about ghostly. I mean, they've brought a boneyard to the biggest church in the entire continent. So that's just so ominous and dark. And again, reminds us that Cersei has these queen of the dead vibes going for her, this corpse queen stuff. We've talked about that since her first chapter and well, she's leaving a trail of bodies. (laughs) So as we mentioned in Jamie's chapter, she has slept with Osney, may not actually other sleep with the others though. She'll confess to it. She wants Osney to bed Marjorie, which is another just, Eh? Why does she think that'll work? Why does she think Marjorie's dumb enough to sleep with the kettle black? <laughs> Why does she? <laughs> At the evidence he gives is like, yeah, they tease me, they make fun of my nose, so yeah, she's into me. <laughs> like, wait, what evidence? That's evidence that she's into you. He's like, yeah, I can, I can get this done because <laughs> this is Keystone Cops here, y'all. They're just not. These are not very smart people. Cersei thinks her plan with Osney, Marjorie, and Jon Snow is elegant. that's how in her mind it's elegant but marjorie is not dumb (laughs) marjorie's not just gonna be like oh yeah let me sleep with him that's not gonna happen (laughs) she's not she's not a fool like that i mean i don't think maybe she is i don't think she is i i don't read marjorie to be that dumb And she's also already she's done it herself though she's the one that's already slept with Osney (laughs) she's the one that's making this big mistake it's like I'm gonna I'll show her I'm gonna get her to sleep with this guy that I just slept with wait
1: yeah I mean even (laughs) if Marjorie was dumb enough to be sleeping around say she's not she's not doing it with some like kettle black who like they don't even have much of a status. They aren't particularly attractive. Like they're not of an age with her. Like there's no reason for her to ever choose them if she's gonna
0: do something unsavory. Yeah. (laughs) And you can see sort of Taina working the angle here. Taina's like, Cersei says, I'm gonna send seven candles to the Sept. And Taina's like, you know, Marjorie's gonna send 77. (laughs) She's just reminding her of this one upsmanship that really isn't happening. That's mostly in Cersei's head. And Taina's just egging her on there because we know that when Cersei is playing games like this, she's not being effective. She's focused on petty things. not going to work out. And Taina even gets the name out. It's like, is it Osney that you're going to try to do this with? So it actually seems more like bait that Cersei is falling for rather than the other way around, which Cersei thinks she's baiting Marjorie. It's mentioned that there's a letter from Janos Slint. Of course, Slint isn't going to be around much longer in The Dance with Dragons, but you wonder about this whole plot with Cersei sending a hundred men and Osni to kill Jon Snow. How much communication happened with the wall with regards to that? Of course, this never actually happens. These hundred men don't actually get sent. Osni ends up in prison instead with the High Septon. But this communication could have already happened. In other words, Kyburn could have already been in correspondence with, say, Bowen Marsh. Could have already talked about getting rid of Jon this early. Bowen may have been waiting for those hundred men that, in fact, never come because of, well things get pretty chaotic. There's a lot of reasons why that doesn't happen, but that might be a reason why Bo and Marsh didn't act sooner. They may have been planning to kill John before the Shield Hall event and just decided, well, I guess this help is never coming, so time to go. By the way, Ozni says, I've killed more boys than I can count. Like, (laughs) whoa. This is when Cersei is effective, though, by the way. She's really good at reading people's base emotions it's, it's almost like a stopped clock is right twice a day situation with Cersei. She assumes the worst about everyone. She assumes everyone has horrible intentions. And because this is Westerosi power politics, she's not wrong half the time. Most of the time when she suspects people are coming for her, she's right because they are. Again, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. It's an ongoing theme with Cersei that, yes, they are after you. You're, you're thinking the worst about them is accurate. <laughs> but a lot of times she's wrong. A lot of times they're not doing the work. A lot of times, like Kevin's not, you know, going to the Tyrell. Jamie's not siding with the Tyrells, but he is turning against you. So even when she's wrong, she's not fully wrong on some of those things. The Iron Bank troubles are starting here. We, we start to see about not paying the Iron Bank and she diverts the funds that would be a payment to the Iron Bank towards these new wardromans for our Waters that are just going to get stolen. <laughs> so mm. they also discuss the veil and discuss that they want Littlefinger to stay in charge. They, they order the rest of the veil to not harm him. And Littlefinger asks for some tapestries. A lot has been said about these tapestries. A lot of guesswork about these tapestries. It's such a fun thing that this little casual mention generates a lot of discussion. Nina says she doesn't think it's accidental that Littlefinger is asking for tapestries from the crown. The lords of the veil are standing against him. He knows that already. So it's not too far a leap to think that these lords would try to oust him from power by... Appealing to the crown. Littlefinger may have sensed that move and has taken steps to cut their plan off at the head. He, al- he also really needs to keep Sansa hidden. That's super important. So not only does he need to hold onto power and to keep her hidden to deploy his Harry the Air Winterfell strategy, if he writes to Cersei and barely mentions the threats happening around him and just says, hey, I want some tapestries, well, Things sound pretty calm. All he cares about is getting some tapestries. It sounds like there's nothing going on up there. All right? We can ignore that for now. For, it, it might be just that. It might be that simple, but it's probably, there's probably more to it. These are Baratheon hunting tapestries. The Baratheon look, there's Baratheons portrayed all over these tapestries. So if he has some, uh, is he, if he's of a mind to display these tapestries and show them to people and be like, this is what Baratheons look like. Look, look what Tommen looks like. Nah. this could be undermining Tommen's kingship perhaps. And it's funny, too, that Cersei thinks about how much more useful Littlefinger was as master of coin, only for the conversation to transition into not having money <laughs> for paying off the iron bank, but spending money in this royal fleet instead. She thinks that Littlefinger would be useful there, and he might be. But really, as we saw, Littlefinger made the books look a certain way, but he was embezzling the hell out of things. He's, he stole all kinds of money. So actually, you do not want him <laughs> back in charge of that. Now here's the red wine twins. We talked about them before, and they're both you know head over heels for Marjorie. And this is this is offensive to Cersei a little bit because it's it's another example of the younger, more beautiful queen getting followers that she's worried about. So here's a new thought for me, and I think it'll probably be new to most of you all. We've done a lot of referencing Cersei to Aries and seeing, showing how many parallels Cersei has to Aries. What about the other way around? One thing that's driving Cersei mad here that's constantly on her mind is the Valencar prophecy. It's a legit supernatural element to her backstory that is not just inborn or not just her own poor management or, or her own upbringing by her father. You can't blame any of that on, on that. The, the, the prophecy is its own thing that's working at her and, and making her, giving her all sorts of anxieties. It's really terrible for her mental health. Was something like that going on with Aries? And of course, yes, obviously he had mental health issues. But I mean, was he having, was there a prophecy bothering him? Was there a particular set of dragon dreams recurring that were driving him kind of in the same way? I wonder about that. It's entirely possible. It's something that could come up later that we could get revealed. Jamie could mention it. Barristan could mention it. They may not even know what they're talking about. It might be something that the readers clue into that Jamie doesn't. I made that same point about Rhaegar. Rhaegar could Jamie could have a memory of Rhaegar talking prophecy. And while well, he wouldn't recognize what it means, the readers would. Here's a quote referring to that from Cersei.
1: Malara says that if we never spoke about her prophecies, we would forget them. She said that a forgotten prophecy couldn't come true.
0: I wonder if Ares had a similar attitude. It might just be a coincidence, but it was Rhaegar who, quote, rediscovered. Remember, it seems I must be a warrior. He, These are prophecies that were known to the family as recently as just a few decades past. We just talked about that in Sam's chapter. These are the same prophecies that Ares the First rediscovered. Bloodraven, Aemon, Rhaegar, all these characters got involved in that to some degree or another. A- Egg as well. Did Ares know and decide he was forgetting because of Summerhall, because of his trauma, because of his weak mind? There's a lot of room here for an, for Ares to have a supernatural motivation of his own that's kind of hidden and undetected, especially if, well, Cersei hasn't told anyone about the Valonqar. So if we have all these parallels, Cersei, Ares, maybe Ares didn't tell anyone about what was going on in his mind. If that's the case, then we may never learn about it. <laughs> but... Maybe he made it, mentioned it here and there. He was he was pure insane. So he may have said some things out loud that, you know, if he wasn't insane, he might have kept them in his you know to himself. Speaking of dragons, Cersei herself dismisses talk of dragons in this in this chapter from Orain Water, just as Tywin did. And of course, that's really funny because look at this line. Only a blind man can fail to see that our war is all but won." <laughs> while she dismisses the most important faction that indicates this war is far from over, meaning Daenerys and her dragons. I wonder how seriously Kyburn takes the rumors about Daenerys, though. I mean, he's not he's no fool. It's a curiosity for sure. I don't have an answer, but I wonder.
1: I'd say, yeah, he's no fool, and he believes in magic.
0: Yeah, good point too. Is, yes. it's the
1: larger point about because you you know you can be smart and still be skeptical.
0: And we know he's been interviewing sailors. That's how he found out about the golden yeah. Company's movement. So he is he's there's no way he doesn't know about these rumors. And he of course, comment, there's though.
1: all the people bringing up the the connection between Marwyn and Kaiburn. Uh,
0: that too. And so yeah. the idea
1: of Who's I, I wonder, like, is would Kyburn be more likely to side with Danny ultimately and not even really be on Cersei's side?
0: She might, yeah, he might want to switch sides. It's certainly She's not way more powerful. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, it's not what happens in the show, but who cares? Yeah. <laughs> I don't look at Kybern
1: as being someone who, like, is super loyal.
0: Yeah, why would he stick with Cersei he, through thick and thin if he doesn't, you know, it's like, um, I'm out, y'all, <laughs> <laughs> sinking ship, let me go. Uh, and the, the, the chapter ends with this line.
1: In the dream, it was Tyrion's head they brought her in their sack. She had it bronzed and kept it in her chamber pot.
0: How depraved is that, Joe says. She feels genuine joy over her dream that she can pretend she's defecating on her little brother's head. That's a pleasant dream. <laughs> that is, like I said at the beginning of the chapter, you, she's slipping. She's just going farther towards this Aries thing. It's It's the, the combination of power going to her head, the hubris that we mentioned. The extended drinking, the loss of her relationship with her brother, making her feel more isolated and lonely, which she wouldn't admit because this for self-internalized misogyny, she's not going to admit to weakness. What a chapter for showing us just how far she's going. And I, this is why Cersei chapters are so great, because we just talked about like half of the, the freaking plots and all of the Song of and Fire that are ongoing, while also having this amazing personal story developing with her. While all these other little hints, like there's so many one-liners in this chapter that we could speak for pages on. Uh, we're not going to because we gotta we gotta keep ourselves a little bit limited here. And of course, that's what we have other episodes for. <laughs> but really, Cersei chapters are just so good. <laughs> I just really, really love it. So there's some ghost thoughts here too. That's a recurring theme. It was more prominent in the last week, but she's thinking about Renly, John Aaron, Robert, her father, and how they're all gone, and how it's like her time now. Uh, she, she she thinks that since they're dead and she's alive that she's won. I don't know if that's really how it works when you're talking about like John Aaron. who was like 70-something and her father was late 50s. Like, I mean, they were older than you. They had longer. Like, you haven't had their accomplishments yet, you know? Uh, Tree Girl wonders if Cersei will ever tell anyone about the Valonqar. I wonder about that too. It might be. If we're looking for a way for Jaime to and Cersei to come back together, that might make Jamie sympathetic towards her. You know, a pregnancy would do that too if, the, if she gets pregnant again or something like that. But if Jamie finds out that his sister has been haunted by this awful, awful prophecy her whole life, that might change his mind a bit on her state of mind and engender and a lot more sympathy, which could lead to the coming back together that we see on the show that ends so badly with them like that. But, kind of
1: mad if I were Jamie though, yeah, it might I have mixed feelings. I'd be like, This is relevant to me in my life, too.
0: Yeah, that's true. He should have shared, but but he might be able to she might convince him that it was just too hard. Yeah, to speak to, yeah. I don't, that, I don't, not,
1: not that I expect Jamie to react like that, but putting myself in his shoes, that's I, I would react like that. It's a long time to yeah. keep something from someone like that's your partner in life.
0: Fair point. Yeah, yeah, good point. It's 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 kind of like. It's a similar debate, but for much different reasons to Ned not telling Catelyn about Jon Snow. Of course, in that example, it might just be that Ned made a promise. Yeah. And Ned doesn't want to break his promise.
1: Yeah, that's exactly but, what I thought of. Yes.
0: But still, a, a strict promise versus an implied promise to your lover, your lifelong lover, that still carries a lot of weight. You know, maybe he didn't make a promise. Maybe she didn't make a promise not to say anything, but your point stands that It's not the kind of thing you should keep from your partner most of the time, you know, without some extenuating circumstance. And I don't know that that one exists here. Stefan B. says that this is Gandalf the Kyburn, because Gandalf uh, goes from Gandalf the Grey to Gandalf the White. And so does Kyburn here. (laughs) And he is sort of a a magic user himself, but using the the evil kind of magic. uh (laughs) Bran Winslow also says, When Cersei is thinking of Jon Snow, perhaps he will even thank me before the blade slides between his ribs. Mm. (laughs) The blade will slide between his ribs, but he won't be thanking you. That's a pretty good one. There's that yikes anecdote about Mia Stone. That's when Robert hits her is when she threatens to kill his bastard girl here. And uh, well, I certainly am not condoning Robert hitting her, but that is a really awful thing to like, yeah, if you bring her here, I'm killing her. I mean, that's threatening your child. So, I mean, not that Robert took any care of that child. He hardly knew she existed, but still, eesh. No, and there's no good guys in that moment there. <laughs> My last line here, I love this quote. Best example of how dumb Harry Swift is. He's just constantly like, who, what, where? I don't get it. You know, <laughs> like this is, the guy, this is constantly interjecting. But the best is when he's like, the turnip knight? I do not know this man. Who is that? <laughs>
1: Yeah, his last name is Swift, and he's just not quick witted in the least.
0: He is Hari's slow. Yeah. <laughs> he is Harry's crawl. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that is it for Cersei 4, our final chapter of the day The Iron Captain. I finally get to wear my faded Victorian shirt. Not a lot of Victorian shirts out there, but I've got one. So, this one uh, we've called The Gang Prepares to Moot. The next, the actual next chapter, the first one next week will be the King's Moot and AKA the one where men see, when men see my sale, my sails, they pray. Here we go. New POV time by the, we're deep, pretty deep in the book, but we don't even have our last first POV because we haven't even had Ariane's first chapter yet. And so keeping with our mirrored structure, both of the two storylines hit major points within two chapters of each other. The majority of that is going to come next week with the King's Moot and Queenmaker chapters. But this is the setup for that, and it's great. The opening line of this chapter is...
1: The wind was blowing from the north as the Iron Victory came round the point and entered the holy bay called Naga's Cradle.
0: Asha and Theon are complex and interesting characters. Aaron and Katarian are still interesting, in my opinion, but they're not as complex. But even George's less complex characters are still extremely well-done human portrayals. George's least complex characters are often more complex than other books' main characters, but even simple people are complicated. I mean, simple human doesn't mean simple. Humans are complicated, even the simple ones. So personally, I find Victorian fascinating. It it might surprise some of you to hear that he's one of my favorite POVs, it won't surprise others of you because I've said this before. <laughs> it's obviously not because I think he's, say, a good person. It's clearly not that. He's not a good person.
1: I have to, did, Aziz, uh, and I, we have a, a group chat with Sean who's reading it for the first time so he can't watch along. long. But he gives us his comments and he got to the Iron Captain and for each chapter, he's got like this long list of, of comments. He gets to the Iron Captain, he just wrote, the Ironborn are all goons.
0: And it's interesting that he said that. It's funny, but it's also like...
1: He just read Asha.
0: He just read Asha, but so much of this chapter, me, the meanings from it comes later. Like this chapter on reread is so much more powerful than it is the first time. It's, it's more difficult to see where the Ironborn plot is going, especially from a show watcher who got the, the Ironborn plot wasn't nearly as interesting as we think it's going to be in the books. It it makes sense that a lot of first time readers of the of the Ironborn plot are like eh it's not as you know I don't have as much to say about this but the more you dig into it the the deeper it gets and the more awesome it is and well I'm I'm a great uh, well at least I hope I'm a great salesman for that so given that George identifies with Sam most of all well. Victorian is a really good approximation of what the opposite of Sam looks like. Sam, uh, Sam is not ultra-violent and misogynistic, extremely repressed in his feelings, basically a walking example of contemporary toxic masculinity. Victorian will destroy anything except the things making his society and himself miserable. That really is at the heart of toxic masculinity, which is a misunderstood term that basically just means the, the type of behavior men are often encouraged to per, be, uh, to, the type of man men are often encouraged to be in society isn't just bad for everyone else, it's bad for them. It makes them miserable. And this is very true for, for Victorian. Because Victorian is miserable. There's a dichotomy in bravery here, or everywhere. This is just a dichotomy in bravery, period. There's the courage to face physical danger, to face death, to face maiming via the song of steel or whatever you want to call it for this setting, Victorian has plenty of that, but there's moral courage to face the issues to speak up. Victorian has none of that. Victorian is his—I mean, what is his king's mood speech? I will remind you. I'll do more of the same. <laughs> it's like, status quo, yo—that's his motto. <laughs> he only breaks the status quo when it's personal to him. When he's when it, the status quo pumps up uron, that's when he challenges it because he hates uron. This is a this is a culture that encourages selfless selfishness as much as it in, it does encourage worship of the drowned god. A huge part of this is his incredibly high levels of superstition. Victorian is very superstitious. He believes deeply in the drowned god's faith. He believes deeply in cultural notations like that kin slaying is evil, things like that. And they really, as you can see from in, inside his head, they really, really matter to him. They they lock him up he is bound by these cultural things and that's huge because they don't bound Euron. It's important to read the Victorian chapters as unironically as possible. Victorian is in George R. R. Martin's own words, quote dumb as a stump, but more importantly he genuinely believes in the old way and ironbornness. It's sincere. It's deep and sincere. It isn't like a, I do this because we all uh, the rest of us do it. He really believes it. Arguably he's his is deep or more so than Euron with his beliefs. Because Aaron was a convert. Aaron was a joker in his youth. He was he came around. Whereas Victorian has been like this his whole life. Victorian isn't really a guy who changes. Victorian is a well status quo, yo. Victorian and Aaron are linked in that, not just in their faith, but in how much they hate Euron and how much they've both been traumatized by him. Deeply personal, as I said to see him back, to see him gaining power, and to see him take charge. They, oh man, they hate it so much. And it's not terribly clear in this chapter why. Uh, Well, it is on Victorian's side, perhaps, but Aaron's side, we haven't really gotten that deep into yet. His reasons for being troubled by Euron have only been, the surface has only been scratched on that. The more a character resembles the author, the less challenge it probably is to flesh out their personality because they have familiarity with these personality traits, like with Sam being a bookworm, you know, things like that, being a little shy, whatever. That's George is kind of like that himself. So sometimes when he's writing Sam, he can tap into his own emotions, his own personal experiences throughout life. But he can't do that with Victorian. Victorian is as far apart from George as Sam is close. Sam has just defended Gilly in part because he's observant enough to see she's gone through all these courageous things. On the other hand, Victorian would never notice that. But it's not hard to see that Gilly has gone through a lot. You don't have to be Sam to notice that. But Darian, as we saw, didn't catch it. Victorian definitely won't either. And this comes up a lot throughout this chapter, how he's unwilling to budge, even when he's approached by one of the smartest ironborn there is, Asha. He says, you cannot hope to rule. You're a woman.
1: Is that why I always lose the pissing contest?
0: (laughs) Good one. Another pissing contest comes shortly after this one. Euron shows up. They kind of argue back and forth a bit. Hat tip Brandon Winslow on this catch. Immediately, he brings his main theme with him, quote.
1: But then a sudden silence fell. The singing died. Little Lenwood Tawny lowered his fiddle. Men turned their heads. Even the clatter of plates and knives was hushed.
0: And then when he leaves, it happens again.
1: Euron lifted two fingers to the patch that covered his left eye and took his leave. The others followed at his heels like mongrel dogs. Silence lingered behind them till little Lenwood Tawny took up his fiddle.
0: Mm-hmm. Creepy. Now, if you're a Lovecraft uh, fan or have read Lovecraft, you know that, uh, well, there's one particular one the music of Eric Zahn, where a fiddle playing drives away a demon, uh, an unspecified darkness that this this guy constantly plays his fiddle to keep this this darkness at bay. It's, cr- it's a really creepy story. But anyway, uh, because Euron is so Lovecraftian in his portrayal that we, I'm constantly thinking about things like that. You name it though, you name it, Euron wants to silence it, to own it, to control it inside and out. He's a denier of information. He's a denier of agency. He's a denier of everything, really. He wants to control it all. He is far more ambitious than probably anyone. I don't think there's a single character more ambitious than Euron, not even Danny, which is not, of course, a compliment to him, (laughs) nor an insult to Danny. Ambition like efficiency is not by itself a good thing. It's how you use that ambition. What are you ambitious to do? Are you ambitious to lift people out of harsh circumstances to alleviate suffering? Good ambition. Are you ambitious like Euron? Clearly not good. Victorian is even unnerved by just what Euron looks like.
1: His hair was still black as a midnight sea with never a white cap to be seen and his face was still smooth and pale beneath his neat, dark beard. A black leather patch covered Euron's left eye but his right was blue as a summer sky. His smiling eye, thought Victorian, Crow's eye, he said.
0: I like the use of sea metaphors. It's appropriate for a guy who's just a sort of a one-note man. Victorian, being so narrow with his thought processes and his culture. Uh, cultural uh, ideals. Of course, he's going to associate things with sea and ocean metaphors. It's so interesting that, rather, that Euron wears an eye patch that he doesn't seem to need. In the Euron episode, we go into some detail on why that might be. There's some real world examples of that. But also, it's just a way for him to pretend to be more ironborn than he truly is. In some ways, he's as ironborn as they come. But in other ways, he's not at all. He's beyond them, and not really loyal to them. He wants to use the Ironborn as means to an end. He is another crowned beast. Euron's ship is a red hull with black sails, fitting to color-wise that he wants to hook up with Daenerys, whose colors are the same, you know, House Targaryen, red and black colors. The silence, that ship, it's such a unsettling thing. As Nina points out, the Ironborn are not quiet. We've seen these gatherings, they're loud, they're raucous. People are like throwing axes at each other and yelling and cheering and there's some music. But so for this guy to walk in and just, just everyone is quiet, it just shows how afraid of him people are, how big and important his presence is, how dominating it is. It's like one of those things you talk about in the real world was like, you ever seen that kind of charisma where when someone just enters the room and everyone notices and takes that, like, Euron is being displayed as that type of person here. It's rather clear, even to first-time readers, that this is the guy who's going to take over. It's it, it's not much of a stretch. Victorian is not good at talking. Asha's got all this misogyny that's forced on her. She can't she can't win. These other names that people hardly that get mentioned once or twice they're not going to win. It's pretty obvious that Euron's going to win. But how? That's a big trick. That's a trick. That's that's really clever. We don't see the dragon horn coming. <laughs> that's like whoa, hey. Uh, Joe says we get a strong sense of how large and powerful the Iron Fleet actually is. It's it's more powerful probably than we thought because we, we've been told that reaving ships, these long ships, aren't necessarily great in naval action, but the Iron Fleet is a cut above. It was built by Balon to match the larger warships of the mainland. And a lot of those ships were destroyed in the war, uh, Balon's Rebellion, but a lot of them were not. And a lot of them have been rebuilt since... So given Euron's raids on the Reach, Paxter Redwine being used to assault both Dragonstone and Storm's End, and then maybe save the Reach or maybe the Shield Islands from Garland Tyrell. If Orion Waters makes up with the Royal Fleet, you can really see there's just all sorts of cool naval action happening. Now, I'm really excited to see how this plays out. There's lots of, lots of great setup. We learned that Guitarian cherishes these ships above all. That makes sense. He is the Iron Captain. They're sort of his his children. He doesn't have children of his own. He doesn't have wives anymore. It's almost like he's made the Iron Fleet his family in a different setting with a different character that could actually be a noble thing. But of course, it's not. You, you see that some of his small in, uh, small bits of intelligence, He's not a. he's got a few things he's smart about, which is that he actually memorizes all these different sigils and, and flags. He knows the ships really well. And he is fairly competent as... A war- well, he's very competent as a warrior and fairly competent as a sailor, uh, very competent as a sailor in terms of leading men into battle. Honestly, it seems like his plan to attack Slaver's Bay is pretty good. So in terms of battle, he's not necessarily a dummy. Maybe he could be fooled easily, but he's not without some skills at war. I mean, Balon's not a smart guy either, but he didn't have to name Victarion Captain of the Iron Fleet, and he did. So yeah, let's let's not go too far with Victorian as a dummy. Let's keep in mind that some of his, you know, he's got at least a feather or two in his cap there.
1: Victorian is a fun example of one of the words that when George reads chapters out loud, he says names both ways. Yeah. Just like we all do. Sometimes he Vicarian. says Victorian, sometimes yeah. he says Victorian. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I like that. I
0: appreciate it. Yeah. It's, there's that line, no man had ever loved his wives half as well as the Lord Captain loved his ships. That is brutal given what we find out has happened to his wives. It will trickle in through the chapter. But Victorian had two wives lost naturally and then was, quote, forced to beating the third to death. The claim here is that his ships are worth more than all of them. Well, to him, that's probably true, but we're going to learn how much that third one haunts him, which is another comparison to Arya. Arya Hotak kind of married to his axe and Victorian married to his ships. Asha has a similar quote about being married to her own axe later on. Weirdly enough, but uh, that's—it's less true in her case. Not that she's not very capable with the axe; she's just got a far more multifaceted personality. The ship's grief and iron vengeance send uh, cast some vibes there. Kind of describes Victorian himself. He has a lot of grief, should be guilt, but it sounds more like grief. And he certainly has desire for vengeance against. Against Euron. Uh, He is simply restrained by his cultural taboos. Here's the first description of Silence the Ship.
1: And then he saw her, a single masted galley, lean and low, with a dark red hull. Her sails, now furled, were black as a starless sky. Even at anchor, Silence looked both cruel and fast. On her prow was a black iron maiden with one arm outstretched her waist was slender her breasts high and proud her legs long and shapely a wind-blown mane of black iron hair streamed from her head and her eyes were mother of pearl but she had no mouth
0: God, so- I tried
1: to, I tried to read it as if Victorian was like really into the ship.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it creeps him out. <laughs> but he probably likes it. He's probably part of him likes it because like, yeah, he's cool like that's ship. a cool
1: ship. Yeah, yeah like that's fine. Yeah. It's like, and then he saw her.
0: <laughs> Yeah, for a guy who likes ships, that's got to stand out for sure. It's not exactly the first time he's seen it, but he hadn't seen it in a while. And even now, it kind of awes him a little bit. Baylor Blacktide is mentioned here. He comes up to chat with Victorian. Is Baylor Blacktide sort of Theon light? We hear that he was eight years hostage in Old Town, and that's why he now worships the seven, or why he did, given he is no longer alive. But Baylor Blacktide's father did not survive, and he blames Balon for that, too, meaning for his father dying in the rebellion. So that's eh, it's a little similar. And he has this line here.
1: Balon was mad, Aaron is madder, and Euron is maddest of them all. Lord Baylor said. What of you, Lord Captain? If I shout your name, will you make an end of this mad war?
0: No, is the answer. But <laughs> <laughs> Baylor will boldly refuse to accept the king's mood's results. None of it goes the way he wants. He's like, well, I definitely don't want on. I could have maybe been okay with Asha. He, he likes the Asha plan. He doesn't, wanna, he doesn't want um, the war to continue. So he's going to run off after the king's mood, but he's not going to make it. He's going to get caught and cut into seven pieces and honor of the seven gods he follows. You know, I wonder if Euron made a small mistake there. He could have maybe used Old Town, maybe used his knowledge of Old Town like Stannis might be using Theon's knowledge of Winterfell as a strategic advantage, but eh, whatever. He didn't need it. <laughs> Remember last chapter, we, were, we went pretty deep with the ghost theme and, and how Ironborn women and children are forgotten about and cast kind of like ghosts and ignored. Well, Black Blacktide basically says that here. I uh, maybe should have just quoted him. He's more—he's pretty efficient with it. But le- either way, let's quote it now.
1: We cannot stand alone against all Westeros. King Robert proved that to our grief. Balon would pay the iron price for freedom, he said. But our women bought Balon's crowns with empty beds. My mother was one such. The old
0: way is dead. And Vigdarian responds with the height of honest debate tactics, with a slogan, a religious mantra: oh, "What is dead may never die." This is how Victorian confronts overwhelming evidence with dogma, with a, a, just a repeated phrase like, "How is that an argument?" It's no wonder Baylor is just like, "All right, dude, I'm out of here. <laughs> never mind then." This will, of course, continue the launch of Euron's assault on the gods of the world. His ambitions, like I said, at this point are are greater than this chapter indicates, and as grand as anyone's, as grand as what he even says at the king's moot. It's beyond that, even. He, he's His vision is huge. He's like, we're going to take all the Westeros. But honestly, his plans are bigger than that, even. He wants to slay the gods, basically. So it's important to, to see that Asha didn't beach her ship where Victorian expected. She landed on the other side of the island and then rowed across, which is a sign that she was taking the euron Uran comparisons not too lightly. Remember, Uran. Uh, Uran Red Hand just slaughtered everyone at the king's mood and said, I'm king because I killed all the others. So she was at least wary of that possibility. Meanwhile, the one who actually blocks the entrance to the bay is Victorian himself. He wants to seal silence in there. So that's kind of a little triangle there. Euron, like I said, he knows that Victorian and Euron are afraid of him. But he also knows what I said about the superstitions that bound them. He has overcome those superstitions. He is not bound by these cultural laws, kin slaying belief in the gods. He doesn't care about any of that. So they are not only not as smart as him, not only not as old as him, not only not as capable as him, but they have these restrictions on their behavior that he does not have. You can also tell that Asha is a good speaker too, but Euron is just as good or better. And... We see that Victorian, while his military leadership is pretty good, his kingship would probably be a disaster. So this is where we see that Euron just has all the advantages. It's overwhelming. That's why I was saying earlier that even a first-time reader can be pretty clear that he's going to win. But even a first-time reader cannot guess at the scope of his goals. You, most first-time readers are still thinking about the Ironborn and not thinking that the Ironborn are not the race you would expect to be claiming dragons and possibly trying to take the whole continent. That. That's not really in anyone's scope at that point. So it's quite the description of his people, too. His monstrous characters and then this dialogue between them. So good. The way he makes debate a battle and it shows that leaves no doubt who the winner is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very ironborn to have debate serve as a as sort of like a, a fight. Here's a great quote.
1: You serve one god, damp hair, but I have served ten thousand, from Ib to a shy. When men see my sails, they pray. <laughs> a
0: what? There's no very
1: iconic line, right there. Yeah,
0: there's just no coming back from that. Like <laughs> he completely goes off the board, talking about killing gods and better being better than them, completely outside the realm of normality. People just don't think about these things. It's 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 there. The Ironborn are not prepared for this. This level of ambition, this glory, this, this vision, and they love it. The full picture, again, it's still nowhere near seen, but it's amazing. Asha's chapter at 10 Towers showed that there were niches within the Ironborn culture that we didn't know about. And this is just a whole other niche. Euron is just a unique thing. He pretends to be one of them. It's, the eye patch is part of that. He's excellent at manipulating, he's just as violent and, and brutal as they are. But he's not really trying to be ironborn. He's really trying to be more than that. He's really trying to use them. He doesn't really respect his culture. He, they're a means to an end. Here's another great quote.
1: Their little gods cannot stop me. So plainly, they are false gods. I am more devout than even you, Aaron. Perhaps it should be you who kneels to me for blessing.
0: I pointed big things Aaron is restricted by in terms of his beliefs and how he's bound by the tenets of the, of the faith and of his culture in ways that Euron, that Euron isn't. But he's also just too serious. He, he can't, he, he isn't able to use mockery really in a debate like this. He can only be serious and angry while well, Euron can be loose and confident and knows that mockery has a lot of power amongst the ironborn. Winning is what matters. Winning these exchanges in public is where the authority is going to come from in the king's mood. And Euron wins every war of words in this scene and easily. So Euron leaves eventually after just defeating everyone who tries to speak to him with war of words. And he leaves Victorian with one final dig about how he shall win the king's moot. Sure enough, people immediately start leaving because they already are like, whoa, maybe I'm on the wrong side. They already kind of start to get it that Euron is the way forward for them. We see the blue-colored lips. We know what that means now. We didn't necessarily understand it at the time. We, we may have had a hint because we see the blue lips of the warlocks, but people may not have made that connection. But, oh yeah, he is drinking a lot of that. Asha quickly realizes, especially given it wasn't looking great for her anyway, she sees these exchanges. She sees how people react to Euron. And she immediately, because she's smart and not so stubborn and not trapped in these traditional roles, she realizes, okay, we're not going to beat this guy. He's going to win the King's moot. We got to team up. Our only way to stop him is to come together. That's pretty progressive. But it of course doesn't work because Victorian's like, nah, I'm ugh. what is dead may never die. Women can't rule. I'm nah, I don't compromise. Just <laughs> these things are just not serving him. <laughs> but he's too stuck to to think his way out of it. So when Asha tells him men are speaking of Euron burning the iron fleet, Victorian's like, gets mad. He's like, I did that. I'm like, that misses the point, yo. Euron's getting the credit. That's just proving that this is farther out of reach than you thought. That's another victory for him. He's getting the credit for a great victory, and he's going to use that tomorrow at the King's moot. And that just is another example of why you can't win the King's moot, and neither are not. Neither can I. But self-reflection is not very macho. So unwilling to see the evidence, unable to, maybe. He's not the smartest guy. And he still has this zealotry going. He still probably thinks no matter this evidence around him, it's going to come down to the drowned god, not the evidence of who's doing what. So this is really very much Euron understands a lot of this and can just easily dance around it. He knows what he's dealing with. He knows how much he outclasses the other thinkers here. Thinkers. Euron's strange crew, let's come back to that. Victorian sees them as monsters. He lives in a closed society. Like he's been around a bit, sailing to the Stepstones probably, but he's never been as far east as, as, as Euron has. He's never been to, um, he, maybe has, he maybe has been to the Summer Isles, but he hasn't been to Sotharios or uh, certainly not like Ashai or Valyria. So you wonder how he controls these men. Is it really just the entire crew? Has he really cut the tongues out of all of them? That's what the show says, too. I'm a little skeptical that's the case here, but, you know, I wouldn't be that surprised if it's the case. It's kind of like what Ramsay does, claiming people in a similar way, but on a larger scale and with greater efficiency. Ramsay's like a slasher film villain while Euron wants to be the new Bloodstone Emperor, right? <laughs> Great Empire of the Dawn episode plug there. We, we go into more detail on that in that episode as well as in the Euron episode and the Forsaken episode. And,
1: of course, we get it more into Euron later I mean, in, in that episode, too, but... Um... I it would be remiss if I didn't mention Varys right there. Yeah, <laughs> Just, it has to be mentioned that, of course, similarly, Varys also uh, silenced
0: the people. little birds. Yeah, yeah. So very true. But anyways, Good
1: point. He, he, you know, if, if <laughs> Varys can do that, Euron uh, has it in him.
0: Yeah, that's really that's a great point. I, I actually didn't think of Varys here, but you were. That's that's a perfect thing to say. So yeah, I do see the connection between Euron and Ramsay, and that this is violent, brutal slavery. Basically, it's not. I guess you could call it slavery. It doesn't really matter what we call it. It's awful. We don't. We're not struggling to describe it to to to, to know how we feel about it. It's maybe just a matter of word choice, but yeah. Feelings on it. Out, are, people are like, are oh, it was an
1: indentured servant versus a slave, and I'm like, they both suck. <laughs> yeah. It's
0: a, no, it's a thrall. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Nina points out it's uh, that one of the ships is called the Gray Ghost. I, I noticed that too. That's really neat. That's actually one of the wild dragons from the Dance of the Dragons era. It's probably not named after that dragon. That would be pretty random, but it might be. Either way, it's a cool little nod. And you wonder if the Ironborn ships will ever interact with Dragonstone later in, in, the, uh, in the books. Another mentioned ship is Nightflyer. Uh, that, well, that ship gets called out briefly. That's Baylor Blacktide's ship. And that's George R. R. Martin's short story, Nightflyer, is, is a reference there. In fact, it was a TV show. It only lasted one season. The main, one of the main characters is Melantha Blackwood. In, in the short story "Knife Player," highly recommended. It. It's really good. It's dark and and expansive space lore. It's really good, and it's a little creepy too. Not Euron style creepy. Not violent creepy though. Not violent at all. Well, only a little. It's got some violence, but it's not. Uh, it's different. Anyway, it's worth checking out. Lee indicates the uh, points to the interesting. N- Bit that is Victorian caring so much about the kinslaying taboo. Not so much that he cares about it, but the fact that it's widespread throughout all of Westeros, seemingly. I mean, they don't worship the seven and they care about kinslaying. The North doesn't worship the seven. They care about kinslaying, arguably even more than the rest of Westeros and the seven care about it too. So it really almost seems like something that's propped up by the nobility. Kinslaying is evil because the nobility doesn't want their younger brothers killing them to take their their land, so they created this taboo, because honestly, peasants, commoners, they probably won't care that much. I mean, yeah, you shouldn't kill your own brother or sister, but it matters more to the nobility. You can see why, too. So, I feel like this is one of those cultural traditions that is propped up by the nobility that really isn't as important as maybe other things, like don't rape people or just don't kill anyone. You know, kin slaying was like, why not just no slaying, you know? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Uh, Maybe a commentary on just the commandments period. (laughs) Yeah. yeah,
0: Good point. Yeah. Right. Because it is kind of in that same uh, sort of style of thinking or same sort of approach. Yeah. So, but I wonder too, is, is it the same in Essos? I don't have that sense that kinslaying is so is nearly as frowned on in Essos.
1: Yeah, I don't think we've gotten like a commentary on. It. I don't think we've if we see anything when Danny's in Slaver's Bay. Yeah, if there's yeah. anything about it there, because we that's the one that's one of the places where we see a good amount of culture, yeah, uh, for places. But no, like Arya's in Bravos and dealing with you know death a lot at the House of Black and White, and it doesn't come up once.
0: True. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, course, that's a really good point. The House
1: of Black and White doesn't want you to kill someone you know. So that's a whole other taboo for them. In they terms would be of who you kill.
0: indirectly against kinslaying. Yeah. It's like, no, I never met my brother. Oh, okay, then go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so that is a that's a good catch that leads us to think. How about that. I killed my brother. <laughs> uh, the name Newt the barber comes up here. It's like, what does that name mean? I think this name is hilarious because what I think happens here, and this is just my own interpretation, the name Knut is a Norse Danish Viking name that gets used. And uh, that's still still a real name. I mean, there's name associated with some Norse kings and things like that. So I wonder if this is a version of that name. It's just Newt instead of Canute. And he's the barber because he's so accurate with his throwing axes that he could shave someone with a throwing axe. I wonder if he just, George, shaved off the sea from Canute. <laughs> Back in uh, Jamie's chapter, I mentioned that the, the name of House Kenning. Well, here we go. There are Another House Kenning here is like, wait, why is there a House Kenning in the West and a House Kenning on the Iron Islands? Well, House Kenning of Harlaw founded House Kenning of Case. They, uh, there was a Herak Kenning who established, founded this house, and he sort of took the side of the Westerlands and was rewarded for it. He's got a horn that's a artifact passed down through House Kenning of Case, and we'll see that horn three chapters from now or eight chapters from now in Jamie 3 and, in, and we're going to see it several times. It's like a, it's the Horn of Herok that they announce every time they get to a new castle and will Jamie's chapters see him arriving at several different castles and every single time this horn gets blown. Ralph Kenning is the Ironborn one and he gets mentioned. He's the one that's in charge of the men at the mo- at Moat Kaelin and he's going to die that really horrible death because he gets Cranic bo- uh, Men poison and we'll see that uh, when Theon goes there. So there's your two halves of house kenning. Uh, very casually mentioned is the black line who Maron Volmark is the representative of. That's the line descendants of Heron the Black, uh, as in the guy who built Heron Hall. So, and they ruled the Riverlands and the Iron Islands. And he was really more of a Riverlander than a, an than a Ironborn in the sense that he was a mainlander and not a sailor so much. And he ruled from Heron Hall and spent most of his life building it, et cetera. So yeah, different style there. But this guy isn't, doesn't actually go for the King's Move. Maron Volmark shows up, but he supports Victorian, I think. I don't remember. And Euron steals his support away by naming him as one of the Lords of Greenshield later, which is something Euron does really effectively. He p- appoints other people's second and third in commands to higher titles, which brings them under his control instead, something that Cersei should be doing. That instead she's pushing away these possibly. This is exactly what Kevin and Jamie are trying to tell Cersei to do. Euron does it. Uh, a line I would rather not quote, but will Archmaster Rennie says when Euron says that he sows their screaming women with his seed. He does so. <laughs> I thought Greyjoys didn't so. So it's maybe a brutal, casual, subtle reference to him. It's somehow It's brutal and subtle at the same time. That he is indeed different than the other Ironborn, and especially the Greyjoys themselves. And he's, a, he's just very different than anyone, really. Tree Girl points to the, the line, No man commands the winds, said Ork, Orkwood of Orkmont. Well, we have actually seen people command the winds. Euron maybe can command the winds. We've definitely seen Melisandre do it. We've seen Makoro do it. So it involves human sacrifice, though. And that brings up another question. How might Euron and Melisandre interact later, if at all? I suspect they will, but I have no idea how. She hasn't seen him in her visions or anything. She hasn't even seen Danny in her visions yet, or if she has, she hasn't recognized it. So... Big, open, interesting, curious question there. Those two have another thing in common, which is that they, perhaps more than anyone else, and I've made this connection before, I think it's in the, the episodes we suggested, Melisandra is really good at having pretending to use magic to sell the idea that she has more magic than she really does. She definitely has magic, but she also uses fake magic to make her seem even more powerful. Euron does the same thing. He does things that look like magic to his superstitious ignorant ironborn that are really just advanced, <laughs> just clever or smart. And they think it's sorcery. So more reasons to think about those two characters and how they may or may not interact later. If Euron is challenging the gods, well, Melisandre will be like, well, you know, I'm going to say, I have a thing or two to say about that. But Euron also, when we see the forsaken chapter, he's even got a relore priest amongst the many priests he's captured Uh, So, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly, that one has his hands burned off. Yeah. (laughs) Yikes. Maybe to keep him from doing more magic. Anyway, that does it for today. It's interesting that last week we had 164 minutes of audiobook to cover, and it took us about 30 minutes less time. We had 150 minutes this week, but it took us longer. Eh, new uh, Victorian being a new character is part of that We had so much history to delve into this episode With Bloodraven, Bittersteel, the Golden Company All those Kingsguard, Ironborn history So many little things here and there Ares history, Rael, all that So there was a lot of backstory to cover here Which, as you know, that's some of my favorite stuff to cover So I, this, this has been, it's always fun I love doing Valeritas, but this, this today was particularly fun for me Because we got more history than usual so we've so far we've gone through 794 minutes of the 2030 minutes of the book. We are 39% of the way through. So there you go. Check out the podcast version to see how much was edited out for the for the from the video version. Next week, we've got another great set of chapters. The Drowned Man, the one with the horn from hell, aka The Gang Holds a King's Moot and 4, the gang goes to the Whispers, a.k.a. Blood for the Old Gods. The Queenmaker, the gang does not crown Mercella, a.k.a. Aris vs. Ario. Aria 2, Storytime, Origin of the Faceless Men, a.k.a. Saving Needle for Later. A huge thing ashea has done in between last week and this week is put up something on our website that allows you to access every Valar rereadus episode by chapter, by timestamp, with all the descriptions and everything. It's everything we've done so far in Valaritas is up there. Go to our website, check it out. It's really cool. She got it done really fast too. It was impressive. So if you're wanting to go back through Valoritas and it maybe is a little hard to manage because there's just so many episodes, so many chapters, this should really help you. So we'll be we're gonna continue to to spread the word about this. Drop down. There's a drop-down menu to choose which book you're on. Yeah, there's Game of Thrones under one selection, clash. Storm, Feast, etc. It's not just one big long list, so make sure you notice that when you go there. Really, really cool. I'm really happy with that. Shay did a great job. We mentioned a lot of our other episodes here besides Valveritas. We mentioned Skagos, Manderly Part 1 and 2. Probably more relevant to Part 2, but the history of House Manderly is interesting as well. Bittersteel we mentioned, we mentioned the Three-Eyed Bloodraven episode, Great Empire of the Dawn, pretty much all the Euron episodes, the Hellhorn episode, the Euron episode, the Forsaken episode, lots of stuff about him. Thanks to Ashea, not just for that website work, but for all her great work today with quotes, managing the chat, managing the technology so much at once. Like we've said many times, she is like a Kraken. Mm Mm-hmm, 10 arms. (laughs) But a much lovelier Kraken, Thanks too to Joe and Nina again for their excellent contributions. Thanks to the History of Westeros Mods for managing the Facebook group, which is pretty big these days. we got about 3,000 people on there. There's lots of discussions happening at all times. Things that have nothing to do with Valerie Reedus, but quite a bit that does as well. And they are the vanguard of those discussions, posting every chapter each week in advance of each episode can join us on flick facebook slack and discord again i want to throw out another reminder of that the flick discussions as always have been great as well i've already shouted out facebook uh discord has some great takes too we haven't had that going as long but more people are joining every day so that's that's going real well a lot of different discussion things on there we that's, that's our best spot for discussing non-game of thrones things or discord we got it we have a channel for vikings it's always sunny legion uh, Last Kingdom, The Expanse, just everything, just anything you can think of and and what, what things we don't have, we can add. That's, that's one of the great things about Discord. Flick is the opposite, where it's nothing but the chapter rereads. So, you, we, we hopefully have provided you with a wide variety of options for how to discuss these things with us and with your fellow Westorians. Thanks, too, to ClareDocs.de. Michael Clarfeld is the man we're going to have some of his new uh, newer maps displayed shortly.
1: Yeah, we just uh yeah, my my mic is working now, but yeah, we are uh, supposed to have it for this Sunday, but it's a little bit scary the idea of taking down uh, Essos because it's signed and we're both um,
0: we're wary of tearing it. Yeah, yeah. we're we're a little
1: scared. <laughs> I mean, like we're it's gonna happen, but we have to be like very zen and yeah. calm while we do it.
0: And, I, and this is my fourth live stream in three days, so it wasn't. We are a little busy this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I'd say so. <laughs>
0: Uh, so yeah. Also, th- so again, thanks to Michael Clarkfeld for his great work on the maps and for helping us with the music as well. He hooked us up with Kevin McLeod, who's the Valar Reritus music. Thanks also to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for our regular non-Valar music. That is also the outro for Valar. Thanks to our engineer for improving the sound quality of every episode. Thanks to our patrons for supporting us financially. You are the true anchor of everything here. We would not be here without you. So if you are of a mind to add your contributions to our monthly outlay, that would be much appreciated. But do not feel like you have to. There's lots of ways to support the show. Tell your friends. That's one good way. Rate us on iTunes. That's another good way. Just like and subscribe on the YouTube channel or all the above. We would appreciate that. Write us a review. All those things matter. Pick one, pick them all. We'd be thankful. And of course, as we always try to remind you, Check out Steven Stark's Here Be Dragons. They're discussing the Expanse today. And, well, we're going to go watch some marbles, aren't we? Yeah. Olympics time.
1: Yeah, we have event two, half pipe in the Marble Olympics. Well, Marble League now for copyright reasons. Oh, yeah, that's right, they changed it. But regardless, very excited, very excited. Team Galactic will, uh, will not fall prey to the hosts curse
0: <laughs> balls of chaos minty maniacs yeah the tears wait for
1: our <laughs> our Marvel podcast coming
0: soon <laughs> <laughs> okay everyone we'll see you next week for more Balar reread us